tonight on the Midnight Train Podcast. We discuss the famously cursed 27 Club. But first, what is the weird obsession John has with nipples? Yes, nipples. Tell me what it's like when you hear voices. Honestly, uh, this is this is going to be fun. Did you ever really hear them, or were they just kind of thoughts that yeah. crept into your mind? Um, we're throwing a football around. Okay. Sexy asses. Tell me what you saw and heard. So that was like in what, 2001? Uh-huh. And uh, what was he saying to you? Big ass salami nips. And when he was there, what, what did you two talk about? I got yeah. little BB nips. Yeah, mine was freak style. What was the best advice he gave you? This time we were doing something a little bit different. Was he nice? What? Where was he shot? Fuck, dude. His nipples? Shoulder. What? His nipples? Is that what killed him? Yeah. How did he feel about being dead? And why do you um, why do you think he doesn't show up anymore? My grandmother used to call it Popa Rica. Nipples? Well, that was... Oh, well, fuck it. Grab your drink, sit back, turn the volume to 11 and... Warning, listener discretion is advised. We say things like... This raw pile of meat is extra juicy and ready for packing. Wiggle it. Just a little bit. Imagine what Big Bird's shit looked like all over Sesame Street. And... My grandpa's dog's name is Cliff. Cliff is also a popular serial killer name. Cliff also sells hardware fittings for unique machinery. Don't be a Cliff. All aboard. Hello, passengers, and welcome to season four, episode four of the Midnight Train podcast, where we bring the dark to light. What's that mean? Well, you guys know what that means. We make fun of a joke about creepy shit while bringing you as much information on each topic as possible. I am your host, the conductor of the cryptic, Jonathan Sayer. And with me, as always, is the man who just has too much fun in the beginning of each episode. It's Mr. Jeff Butchko. Hey, How's it going, buddy? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm living the dream. Yeah, we all are. So today, the word of the day. Oh, geez. Are you ready for this? Here we go. Is yeah. Molly Coddle. Molly Coddle. Can you use that? No, and yeah. that's to treat someone in a pampered manner. Oh. So, so all these kids nowadays are, are Molly, Molly Coddled. Oh. There we go. So okay. that's the word of the day. That's let's gonna let's be, use it wisely. That's going to be interesting. Oof. And of course, with us, the purveyor of the paranormal and the guy who actually brought me a really awesome gift today. <laughs> it's the one and only Mr. Moody. What's going on, guys? It is actually going awesome. Yeah? I think. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's yeah. good. You know, things are... How was your weekend so far? Uh, busy as hell. Yeah. Graduation party for uh, my daughter. Oh, uh, yeah, that's so, right. How'd that you know, go? Uh, happy congratulations, should I say, or happy graduation to Alyssa. All right. So, yeah, it was good. It was actually really good. We uh, did as much social distancing as possible. So, none? <laughs> <laughs> no, we did. We did. Are you kidding? Everything was, you know, we had sanitizers everywhere, and it's yeah, like good. everyone was kind of like sitting far apart and right whatever. On, and Strange you know, times. Yeah, we do it definitely is, live in a very, weird. very strange yeah, whatever. And then today, as you guys saw, 
Uh, happy birthday, Brooke. The little get together. Yeah, what's going on out there? Yeah. All, the, all the sombreros. I yeah, saw? it's a uh, Mexican or a uh, I don't know what you want to call it. A uh, it's a fiesta. 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 Should we protest it? Um, we could if you guys want to go out there and wouldn't just wouldn't that be considered isn't that cultural appropriation? I mean, I don't want to molly coddle yeah. anybody, but oh, he was waiting. He was waiting. Yeah. I feel like it's one sided because he's had chance a chance to think he's about this. About you just gotta saying, you gotta man. think ahead. He's been That's thinking all. about it, man. Yeah, yeah. So you guys do good. Good uh, good weekend. Yeah, not bad. Yeah. Not bad. Jeff, good mm-hmm. weekend. Yeah. I'm tired. I'm you uh doing were, some home remodeling. Yeah, you said you got your bathroom done? Yeah, so did you ever put a uh, exhaust fan and light into your bathroom? I have. So mine goes into the attic because it's it's stuck to the rafter, like it's mounted to the rafter. I had to go through a crawl space in like 100 degree weather. Yeah, an old like 1950s fiberglass. I would have just said, fuck it. You're not getting a goddamn fan. (laughs) You're going to smell your own shit. Just put a fan in the window. Fuck it. But I did it and it looks good. (laughs) It's all done. Well, good for you. It ups the resale value. Though. Yeah. That's right. That's you what know, we're shooting for. People, people are buying a house. They're like, listen, that's going to make or break fan. it. I got to have a fart fan. Yeah. Got to have the fart fan. I don't have a fart listen, fan. It's if over. any of the listeners want to put a bid in on my house when it goes for sale, that oh, would be geez. amazing. You could buy Jeff Butchko's house. There was a podcast studio there at one point, by the way. Mm-hmm. <sighs> it's got some history. There was. There was. And uh, we actually jammed in the basement for a while. We did. Yeah. It's it's got it's got some history. There's man. plenty of room in the basement for activities. So Just much please, room. please, if you do buy the house, do not dig up the basement floor. Yeah, don't. don't I would not do that. Yeah, you want to keep that settled because there's there's just no particular reason. It's just probably not something you want. Right. right. Just just That's leave all. it. Leave leave right. things where right. they lie. Yeah. You, you know. Don't wanna, yeah. You don't want to disturb the ground. Right. Exactly. You got to mollycoddle the ground. Oh! Right. Right. Oh! Hey. Thank you. Thank you. So now that that's there, I'm with you on this. See, just got to plan ahead. That's, that's right. All. So you beautiful bunch of dark <laughs> passengers know that we're just three goofballs and assholes that love history and can't get enough of the mysterious. And we want you all to know how much it means to us that you're listening to our goofy asses as we speak. Your reviews and support really do make all the hard work worthwhile. And in saying that, please stop over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now and give us a five-star review. Uh, oh, by the way, we do have video going right now, which hopefully it actually works out this time. So hello out there if you're watching this on YouTube right now. Um, you, you can leave any kind of review you want on you know podcast or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen or whatnot. Surprise us. Say anything. It doesn't matter. You can also find us on Spotify by typing The Midnight Train Podcast in their search bar and click the follow button. You'll then get each episode as they're released. And Patreon subscribers will be getting a special... Uh, oh, we did do a special movie trivia bonus uh, where Jeff, as you guys may or may not have heard, hopefully you guys have listened, um, Jeff was the... Team Viva. The winner of that. And uh, hopefully you guys had a chance to listen. If not, we just ruined it for you. So spoiler alert on that one. But it was super fun. Um, We'll definitely have to do another one of those, I think. Yeah. So he's definitely. yeah. So if you haven't signed up for uh, Patreon yet, make sure you do that. Go over there. Check it out. You can start off. It says five bucks a month. And it's, uh, you know, it's like a cup of coffee a month. Whatever. I like how the listeners chimed in the patrons and they are commenting. They're playing along. with Yeah. yeah, yeah. I saw that. Yeah, Yeah, it was pretty cool. That was awesome. Um. So listen, before we get going and get going into this uh, this episode, which I'm really excited about, actually, Moody brought me a gift today, <laughs> and uh, it's actually from one of our uh, producers, right? He is a producer? Yeah, he is. All right. From one Chad Flint, who I think we mistakenly thought that he was from Canada. <laughs> Moody. <laughs> I oh, okay, whatever. God, I think that so was racist. me. I think that was yeah, 100% that was, my fault. That was both yeah. of you guys. Yeah, but he's actually from New York, correct? Yes, correct. And he brought me... 
a conductor's hat, right? Yep. I now have, and I'm going to put it on here, but first I want Moody to run it over there in front of the camera so uh, you guys can check this out if you don't mind, Moody. It's Thank you, sir. Epic. Check that thing out. It is a conductor's hat, and it's got the, the new Midnight Train logo on it, which I love. Um, let's see if I could see it real quick. Hold on. I'm not, not even on that right now. Um, yeah. Uh, back it up just a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you can kind of see it. Yeah. Wow. And on the top, it says choo choo motherfuckers on it. It's pretty badass. Conductor, the cryptic and the logo on the back. <laughs> so that is my new hat that I'm going to be wearing for every episode for here on out. And you I'm should gonna... wear it to weddings too. And, like when and... you get invited to weddings, <laughs> <laughs> Chad, look, man, I'm putting it on for you, brother, right here. Well, hold on. I got to move and take these off real quick. Oh, this might be hard to do with the, gonna work? the headphone. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I got it. There it is. There's my hat. I nice. got it, dude. Conductor's got his own hat now. Now I'm an official conductor. <laughs> I'm officially a conductor. I Just love it. Get you a train whistle there. Yeah, like a real one. Aboard <laughs> downtown Cleveland. Nobody wants to go there. Hmm. All right, so let's turn on the lights, adjust our seats, grab a drink, and let's get spooky. But first of all. Of course, as you know how we do it, here is a toast for all of you beautiful motherfuckers. entertaining right so uh, <laughs> so i actually i've seen that video and hopefully uh the listeners out there have seen it. have you seen the actual yeah, video where they slow it they slow down like, and they magnify they, like, it they they every time he's like yeah, yeah. Yeah. it's the most disturbing thing i've ever seen in my life <laughs> it's so fucked up puddle of mud you're so fantastic i mean so they are playing a horrible. song by a one nirvana nirvana that's right. And we are going to be talking about Nirvana. In fact, we're going to be talking about uh, Nirvana and the lead singer and uh, songwriter and guitarist of Nirvana, one Kurt Cobain. And we're going to get through that because we're actually huh. talking Never about... Never heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard of him. We're talking about... Well, this this week... Kids and your rock music. Right. We are, uh, we're diving into something a little bit different than the usual shit that we get ourselves into. All right. This week, we are actually discussing the infamous 27 Club. And for those that are not aware... The 27 Club is a list of celebrities and musicians who have all passed away at the age of 27. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, for sure. Now, it is a very, very strange phenomenon. And, you know, it, it, you know, it's so many famous icons um, have been taken all at the same age. And this is something I've been intrigued about ever since I was a kid. Um, I used to think that when I was younger that I was going to die by the time I was 27. You know, I don't know what that meant, that somehow I thought I was going to be famous or, or if I just was a, an idiot. I, I don't know. It, it didn't work out. You're still alive. I'm still alive and I'm not famous and uh, <laughs> I'm still an idiot, though. But you're a conductor now. I am. With an official hat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> doot, doot. Yeah. So it's it's again, it's very it's very weird. And the connections between it is in, it's really cool too going through the research and actually seeing some of the connections that are involved with some of these people that are awesome. So question real quick. Are we going to get into something with a white lighter? 
later the white lighter i saw i was digging around at some stuff and i saw there was like some kind of conspiracy with the 27 club and a white lighter well actually that sounds like something that we're going to talk about okay. in the after the episode which we will be doing for patreon only Ooh. listeners so i should probably get a patreon subscription if i want to hear about if the you want to hear that you're going to want because we're going to other be, bonus stuff and other bonus stuff all on the patreon thing so we're going to be that's what this week's patreon and bonus is going to be is we're going to sit around and actually discuss further in depth more about the conspiracies involved and just our, our more so our in-depth thoughts on the entire thing. So it's going to be the after the episode bonus episode. It's the after party. It's the after it's party. Kind of like right. having a DVD and getting all the extras, right? Right. If it's you bonus. really enjoy the movie, Do right? Still you go DVDs? back. What's is, that? Is DVD still a thing? I don't it's know. Digital video disc. Is that like a, is that like a laser disc? No, it's a digital video disc. So it's like a laser disc. Listen, I'm not going to mollycoddle it. It's a digital <laughs> video disc. That doesn't, even, got, that doesn't even work. He doesn't. It doesn't. No, that doesn't How work. does that not work? It doesn't fit. I'm, I'm not voting on this. He's one. just salty because no, he's no. not on the board. <laughs> I, I am. I am a conscientious objector. I refuse to participate in the word of the day. Wow. Whoa. That was a lot of big words. Even the fans yeah. are doing it. I don't know if you noticed all the posts of the hoagies. Yeah, the hoagies. That was pretty that's funny. Fine. That's fine. That's man. pretty funny. That's, that's fine. Good, that's fine, Moody. You can rain on your side of the table. That's fine. <laughs> that's just because there's a leak in the ceiling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the list is pretty long, and we're going to go and uh, we're going to list most of them. Now, we may you know miss a couple of them, and we apologize for that, but if there's <clears> actually <throat> a lot of information here. Yeah. Um, we're also going dis- to yeah. discuss some of our favorites from the list and discuss what we remember about them, what we loved about them, their impact on music or entertainment and much more this will be an interesting ride to say the least because while the subject can be pretty dark and depressing discussing the lives of these tremendous folks will also be fun for us as we remember what they did who they were and their influence they had on us as artists now honestly we know talking about death and people dying it could be hard especially for a comedy podcast so we're not going to sit here and berate anybody or whatever but if we happen to make jokes about things that they may have done or you know just dumb shit that rock stars and entertainers do that it, it, we are a comedy podcast. I look at it's not too soon. Enough time has passed. Right, right. We're good in that. But so as long as everyone's cool with that, to bring some light to the situation. Yeah, I almost pulled off the greatest troll ever, mm. and sadly, to my demise, it didn't go through. <laughs> so what was that? I don't get to do research for good reason, and I understand <laughs> that why. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we were chit chatting as we do. Oh, and now I know what you're getting at. On our okay. group chat, and yeah. we were going over. Uh, you know, members of this 27 club. And I had brought up a one Mr. Ed. Now, if yeah. you don't know who Mr. Ed is, this goes back to what, the 50s? I'd say probably? 50s and 50s? 60s, right? Yeah, I'm not he, sure. I think yeah. 50s, though. 50s he and was 60s. a poor horse. This is before PETA. And they would shove mad amounts of peanut butter in his mouth to make it look like he was talking for hours on end. <laughs> it was film. a talking horse. It was Do- yeah. Mr. Ed, the talking horse. I mean, yeah. there was literally like six Mr. Eds because they killed him with peanut from, butter. From uh, 61 to 67. 61, there okay. There you go. Uh, horse is the horse, of course, <laughs> of course, and no one can talk to a horse, of course, unless, of course, it is the horse is the famous Mr. Ed. <laughs> so anyways, I had brought it up and I said, you know what? He died at 27 and both of you were like, Holy crap. We were like, add that. Put that in. We have to. And you didn't. Well, because it's not true. (laughs) I wish it would have, though, because it would have been the greatest troll of all time. Do you know know the the horse's real name? Yeah, it's Wilbur. No, it's not. Yeah, I know. Buttercup, right? Bamboo Harvester. That's what I said. The first one or the sixth one? I'm sure they all died. I don't know. (laughs) Do you think? uh, I don't even want to talk about it. No, there there was only one. There was only one. Well, can only be one. Luckily, was a Highlander. Mr. Moody does his research to make sure that we didn't get trolled on that one. So I'll still try. Ha-ha. I still try. So let's get to this. Hopefully you guys are sometimes, along for the ride. Sometimes I do good work. That's right. You do. 
Sometimes. So hopefully you guys can handle it and go along with us. Again, we're not going to be making fun of deaths of people and their unfortunate demise, but we are going to be making jokes. Uh, You might want to turn off WTF when it comes on. (laughs) (laughs) So although the claim of a statistical spike for the death of musicians at the age of 27 has been repeatedly disproved by research, documenting the deaths of celebrities, some noted for their high-risk lifestyles, remains a cultural phenomenon. We will start from the older artists, okay, and move forward to more recent deaths. The earliest account we came across was of a composer named Alexandre Levy. Le- is it Levy or Levy? Levy. I think it's Levy. All right. I, I would assume it's Levy. Right. I don't know. I'm not sure. Well, he was a Brazilian composer, pianist, and conductor who pioneered a fusion of classical composition with Brazil's popular folk music and rhythms. And unfortunately, unfortunately, he passed away in 1892. Not long after that, we come across a ragtime musician named Louis Chauvin, who passed away in 1908. Ragtime! Say that, pal! You play with this. Xylophone? I don't know what the fuck they have back then. There's so many jokes you could do with old-timey stuff, but it's so offensive now. Ah, fuck them. Fuck them. Fuck them. I want to do like... Should I do it? No. (laughs) So now next is the person that we are going to discuss. uh, The first person we're going to actually discuss a little more in depth here. And this is the myth, the man, the legend. This is motherfucking Robert Johnson. All right. So Robert Johnson was an American blues guitarist, singer, and songwriter. He How do is, you not know who he is? I seriously don't know. Are you, you serious? You of all I have people, no idea. I've I never heard of him. I that you would know who Robert Johnson was. Keep going. I'll tell well, you. Yeah, but Jeff, guess what? I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. You'll okay. know. You you'll know. There's one story in particular that you yeah, definitely sure. know about him. Right. You might not have known it was him. What band was he in? He, he was wasn't. not in a band. Well, that's why I don't know him. So he is recognized. Was, there was a movie starring Ralph Macchio. Correct. Yeah, but we, I want to talk about that. That's fine, dude. In the after the episode episode. That's fucking amazing. So he is recognized as a master of the Delta Blues style. He was a talent that influenced many later generations of musicians. Performing mostly on street corners and juke joints, Johnson experienced little recognition or commercial success during his lifetime. He only took part in two recording sessions in his life, in 1936 in San Antonio and 1937 in Dallas. The 29 songs that came out of those sessions were the totality of his recorded output. Most were released as 10-inch, 78 RPM singles between 1937 and 1938, with some being released after his death. In reality, not much is known of Johnson's life outside of the Mississippi Delta, where he spent most of his life. Because so little is known of his life there, um, there, there's been several attempts to reconstruct his life story, including uh, the 1991 documentary, The Search for Robert Johnson, the 1997 documentary, Can't You Hear the Wind Howl, which includes scenes with Kebmo as Johnson. Um, Now, who is Kebmo? He's a rapper. He's a rapper. Okay, cool. More recent. Kev Modi. <laughs> That's cool no. Modi. Yeah. Okay. Jesus More, re- <laughs> More recently in 2019, an award-winning book titled Johnson, Up Jump the Devil, The Real Life of Robert Johnson was released. I've uh, I've read some reviews. Everything I've read about that book says it's fucking amazing. So if, if you're a fan of him or if you have any interest in his story, check that book out. Definitely check that book and out. And again, it's called um, Johnson, Up Jump the Devil, The Real Life of robert johnson so check that book out and it sounds like something i'm gonna have to pick up and read yeah it sounds good from what i could tell it's really good. awesome so a collection of johnson's recordings titled king of the delta blues singers was released by columbia in 1961 it is widely credited credited with finally bringing johnson's work to a wider audience the album would become influential especially on the developing british blues movement eric clapton has called johnson quote the most important blues singer that ever lived end quote 
Musicians such as uh, Bob Dylan, Keith Richards, and Robert Plant have cited both Johnson's lyrics and musicianship as key influences on their own work. Now, many of Johnson's songs have been covered over the years, becoming hits for other artists, and his guitar looks and lyrics have been borrowed by many later musicians. Johnson died on August 16th, 1938, at, of course, the age of 27, near Greenwood, Mississippi, of unknown causes. His death was not reported publicly. He merely disappeared from the historical record, and it was not until almost 30 years later when Gail Dean Wardlow, a Mississippi-based music- musicologist, Researching Johnson's life found his death certificate, which listed only the date and location with no official cause of death. No formal formal autopsy was done as a dead black man found by the side of the road near a farm. A pro forma examination was done to file the death certificate and no immediate cause of death was determined. It is likely he had congenital syphilis and it was suspected later by medical professionals that that it may have been a contributing factor to his death. However... 30 years of local legend and oral tradition had, like the rest of his life story, built a legend where his filled that filled in the gaps in the scant historical record. And I love this because I actually didn't know this as I was uh, going through the, yeah. the, the notes and stuff. Yeah, so it's yeah. a really cool story. I love this. Several different accounts have described the events preceding his death. Johnson had been playing for a few weeks at a country dance in a town about 15 miles from Greenwood. According to one theory, Johnson was murdered by the jealous husband of a woman with whom he had flirted. In an account by the blues musician Sonny Boy Williamson, Johnson had been flirting with a married woman at a dance, and she gave him a bottle of whiskey poisoned by her husband. That bitch! When Johnson took the bottle, Williamson knocked it out of his hand, admonishing him to never drink from a bottle that he had not personally seen open. Johnson replied, Don't you ever knock a bottle out of my hand. Soon after, he was offered another poison bottle and accepted it. Bitch! Fucking bitch. Anyway, Johnson is reported to have begun feeling ill the evening after and had to be helped back to his room in the early morning hours. Over the next three days, his condition steadily worsened. Witnesses reported that he died in a convulsive state of severe pain. The musicologist Robert Mac McCormick claimed to have tracked down the man who murdered Johnson and to have obtained a confession from him in a personal interview, interview but he declined to reveal the man's name. Perhaps the most intriguing tale of Johnson's life is the legend of him selling his soul to the devil to become a famous musician. According to legend, as a young man living on a plantation in rural Mississippi, Johnson had a tremendous desire to become a great blues musician. One of the legends often say that Johnson was instructed to take his guitar to a crossroad near Dockery Plantation at midnight. Full disclosure, there are claims for at least a dozen other sites to be the actual destination or location of where the crossroads actually is. Um, There he was met by a large black man, a.k.a. the devil, who took the guitar and tuned it for him. The devil played a few songs and then returned the guitar to Johnson, giving him mastery of the instrument. The story of a deal with the devil at the crossroads mirrors the legend of Faust, which is a German legend about a man who was highly successful yet dissatisfied with his own life, which leads him to make a pact with the devil at a crossroads, exchanging his soul for unlimited knowledge and worldly pleasures. In exchange for his, his, his soul, For exchange for his soul, Johnson was able to create the blues for which he became famous. The blue historian Steve Cheeseborough. (laughs) Cheeseborough. I know that guy. Cheeseborough. Sorry, dude. (laughs) He invented the hot pocket. It's not as bad as it's not as bad as Crappia from last week. Yeah, fucking Crappia. (laughs) Steve Cheeseburger over here wrote that it may be impossible to discover the exact location of the mythical crossroads because Robert Johnson was a rambling guy. The exact spot of Johnson's grave is also in question as there is no actual documentation of where he was buried. There are three spots with grave markers that have been thought to be his grave site, 
but nobody knows for sure. Another cool fact about Robert Johnson is that he was actually honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Grammys in 2006, 68 years after his death. And the award was actually received by Cloud, or Claude, Cloud, Claude, Claude, his son, which is actually pretty cool. 68 years after he passed away. Yeah, that so, just, that right there just goes to show you how well, how much of an influence that he had. I mean, truthfully, he is. And again, um, Jeff and, and listeners out there, if you don't know who Robert Johnson is, there have been plenty of movies about it. Uh, there's one that we're going to talk about in the Patreon, which is hands down one of the greatest guitar-influenced <laughs> movies of all time. I, w- I will just say this. There is a guitar battle between Ralph Macchio and, and Steve, Steve Vai. Vai. Yep. Amazing, oh, that, yeah. amazing. So we will be talking about that. And so uh, I yeah. saw he wrote uh, "Sweet Home Chicago." That's the only song that stuck out that I that I know. Well, yeah, well, because like somebody, wrote, yeah, the Blues Brothers did a rendition of it. Yeah. So they movie. basically, that's you know, one of those songs that get, keeps going. It's yeah. trickled yeah. down, and, yeah. and, right. and, and if you down. go back and listen to it, you will hear how old the recordings are. Where like you can right. hear like the yeah, and it's a ding, ding, ding. It's from the thirties, from the thirties, man. That's, right, that was like old school. Absolutely. Wow! We'll be right back after this message. Every morning. This episode of the Midnight Train Podcast is sponsored by Voodoo Vodka. 20 times distilled, made from pure cane sugar and handcrafted right here in Ohio. Vodka can be smooth and Voodoo proves it. Drink it straight, chilled, or in your favorite mixed drink. Ask for it wherever you buy your favorite liquors or head over to Voodoo.com and subscribe to their mailing list. While you're there, pick up some Voodoo merchandise and use the promo code Midnight Train Podcast, all one word, to get 10% off your entire order. That's Voodoo, V O U D O U X dot com. Promo code Midnight Train Podcast for 10% off. And you can now buy this delicious vodka online. So order some today and drink with us whenever you listen to the show. Voodoo Vodka, it's magic. But not people to turn. So, yeah, that was Robert Johnson, man. Such a great artist. So, moving on here, we have swing jazz pianist Nat Jaffe, who played with Jan Savitt, Joe Marsala, and Billie Holiday, which I'm a huge fan of Billie Holiday. That's awesome. Love Billie Holiday. She was so great. He also recorded with the great Louis Armstrong. I see skies blue. Oh, that's pretty good. Red roses, too. Nice. (laughs) Nice. Love me some Louis Armstrong. In 1945, Jaffe died at 27 from complications from high blood pressure. Next up, we have, uh, we're coming into the 60s here where we see a rash of deaths occur. In February of 1960, Jesse Belvin, an American singer, songwriter, and pianist who became popular in the 50s, was killed in a car accident. His fourth album had reached number two on the Billboard R&B charts. Shortly after finishing a killer performance on a bill with the legendary Sam Cooke, Jackie Wilson, and Marv Johnson, what a fucking lineup that would have been, dude. Oh. On February 6, 1960, Belvin and his wife were killed on a head in, uh, in, ugh, in a head-on collision at Hope, Arkansas. The concert was the first concert. This is really cool, by the way. Yeah, first concert is. played before an integrated audience in the history of Little Rock and was stopped twice by interruptions from whites in the audience shouting racial epithets and urging the white teenagers in attendance to leave at once. It's kind of fucked up. Yeah, it's wow. crazy. It's yeah. crazy, man. But it's one of those ones that like it's they they were groundbreaking. You Especially know what I mean? like that's not that long ago mm-hmm. in the grand scale of things, you know. Right. So there had been uh, several death threats on Belvin before the concert, which led to speculation that his car had been tampered with before the accident. The 2019 Netflix document- documentary remastered the two killings of Sam Cooke, included statements attributing 
the cause of Belvin's car accident to slashed tires, which is completely fucked up. So following that, we see the death of Rudy Lewis, vocalist of the Drifters, due to, uh, unfortunately, drug overdose. Um, That will be definitely a popular theme throughout this entire episode, (laughs) unfortunately. Yeah. Lewis was one of many members of the Drifters over the years, and he died in May of 1964, the night before he and the Drifters were supposed to record the song Under the Boardwalk. Yeah, dude. Out I saw on that. Song. I read that. I was like, man, that dude was like, he was supposed to be that guy. Right. He you was good. I mean? They were in that blew them. They blew up because yeah. of that song. You know what yeah. I mean? Oh, it's so sad. October of the same year saw the death of R&B and gospel singer Joe Henderson, best known for his 1962 recording of Snap Your Fingers. Due to a heart attack. So at least it wasn't drug related, we hope, you know, because. Yeah, you Jesus, never know, man. man. That's true. In December of 1967, Rockin' Robin Roberts, original member and singer of the fabulous Wailers, died in a car accident. The Wailers were one of Jimi Hendrix's favorite bands when he was just learning to play guitar. Their biggest hit was Tall Cool One, first released in 1959, and they have been credited as being, quote, one of the very first, if not the first, of the American garage bands. So real quick, uh, a lot of these songs that are being mentioned, <clears throat> I had to like, I double checked a lot of them just to see like what they were. Cause I'm like, by name, I didn't really know many of them. Right. You'd be surprised at how many of these songs that we, you, know, you know, Yeah. or if you hear of like, you hear a band that you're like, eh, if you hear like the, so their hit songs, you'd be like, oh fuck yeah. I know those guys. You know no, is mean? that the one? It's like a tall, cool one. Da, 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 no, that's Ro- that's Robert Plant. Okay, yeah, uh, right. I didn't think so. so. But that, was that a remake from that? That's what I was double checking on. I'm okay. like, is that the same song? Did he? But it's a completely different song. That's actually an instrumental song. Mm. The one that they did was an instrumental. Okay, and uh, so were they a uh, like a reggae esque band, the Whalers? No, they were just kind of like an old like 50s, 60s style rock and roll. You're thinking okay. of the Boston Whalers, or Bob Marley and the Whalers? Maybe that's or what I'm that thinking of. The Boston Whalers, they were reggae. No, yeah. there was no Boston Whalers. Yeah, there there was. was Hartford Whalers. Yeah, you can Google it. The Hartford Whalers. <laughs> they were a hockey team. <laughs> and it was Christ. spelled whale like the animal. Yeah, whale. Yeah. Like W-H-A-L-E. W-H-A-L-E. Correct. A-A-L-E. Oh, oh, whalers. Wh- whalers. The whalers. The whalers. <laughs> next, <laughs> next up on October 31st, 1968, lead guitarist of the band Spanky and Our Gang Malcolm Hale was found dead in a Chicago home. He also played trombone and did some vocals for the band. News reports at the time attributed the death to an attack of bronchial pneumonia. Almost 39 years later, a 2007 book stated that Hale, quote, died on a Sunday at age 27 from carbon monoxide poisoning due to a bad heating system, end quote. Ooh. And that account has been repeated in later books. That sucks. That's yeah. a silent killer. That so sucks. Basically died in his house, not even knowing what the fuck was happening. Yeah. Just died. Yeah, make sure you guys have carbon monoxide detectors in your house, because that shit can wipe you out quick. Like the whole family. Like, ugh. You could also get a canary and keep it in a cage and leave it on the kitchen counter. And if the, you go upstairs and the canary's upside down, then you need to get out. Like, a, like you're living in a fucking coal mine? Yeah, yeah. like you're a miner? Yeah. Isn't what they did back in the day? That was the old school detectors. I guess yeah, that'd be a little less true. expensive than some of those expensive. <laughs> I don't know. In a cage. March 26, 1969, saw the death of British rock and roll singer Dickie Pride due to a, but guess what? A drug overdose of sleeping pills. So he's another one that I knew the name, but I never really put any songs to it. I know the song. Yeah. Up was a slipping and a sliding, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Could you uh, imagine like That's his most popular day, song, by the way. Like a drug overdose back in the day when pills weren't like really figured out. Like how brutal that probably yeah, oh was. Yeah. Oh yeah, man. Yeah. Well, they were just taking whatever Handfuls someone pass it to them and say, "Dude, this one will get you fucked up." And they're like, "Okay." 
Yeah, it's bad. By the way, that uh, slipping and sliding was uh, made famous by Little Richard because yeah, he, he covered, covered that song. It, covered yeah. it later on. Little Richard. <laughs> what a dude that guy oh my god I, it's so amazing i love little richard he's a, so flamboyant so flamboyant and just like oh man so rounding out the 60s we have the death of brian jones now jeff you're gonna know that brian jones right you know brian jones. you know brian AC-DC? jones no uh, that's brian johnson uh, brian johnson uh, come on you know no, brian I don't jones know. no all right so jones for the listeners out there and for jeff is best known as the founder and original leader of the Rolling Stones. Oh. Yeah. Initially a slide guitarist, Jones would go on to play a wide variety of instruments on Rolling Stones recordings and in concerts, such as rhythm and lead guitar. See, I'm not a Stones fan. See, I'm not I'm not a big Stones fan either. I do this, give them the credit for what they've done, who they are. Yeah, and I will say this. This is the reason, and I didn't know, for a long time I was kind of wondering, if you listen to a lot of their early shit, it's very bluesy. Right. Hmm. More blues influence. Absolutely. And he's the reason for that. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, you'll well, you'll hear about it, but that's this guy is the reason that the Stones' early sound was what it was. But even right. when then, he was, even when he wasn't there anymore. But then a meteor crashed to the ground on a farm, and inside was a baby, and they named it Keith. Yeah, no, that's pretty yeah. sure Keith Richards was born in. Um, let's see, Smallville, the, the Paleolithic era, right? Yeah, is somewhere correct? around. Yeah, he was. It was like thirty-five million years ago. Yeah, or something? something like that. So it was yeah. Smallville on a farm. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, yeah. Maybe. I mean, he's gonna outlive us all. It's gonna be him, roaches, and Twinkies. That's there's, it. That's all that's gonna know, be left. I don't know if there's. The, I don't know if the quote is in here. I have to find the quote. There's a quote by, uh, uh, not Mick Jagger, but uh, fucking um, Bill, Bob, Steve. Tom, no, Louis, fucking, hold on, George, whatever, just read. I'll figure it out. <laughs> so listen, Jeff, we are musicians. Keith Richards. Keith Richards. There's yes. a quote about, cause he's the same way. Everyone says the same shit about him. And it was like, uh, someone gave him a pet tortoise one time. And, uh, it, <laughs> it said he asked the guy how old it would live. And the guy's like, Oh, they can live up to a hundred years. And Keith Richards responded with, that's why I hate pets because they always die before you. <laughs> something, something along those lines. That's amazing. Like, like you always outlive your pets or something right. like that. So listen, we're all musicians here, and uh, you know we you know tinker with. I play a little bit of drums. I play a little bit of guitar. Play a little bit of piano. Mostly a singer and stuff. But this guy, he would play such things as uh, rhythm and lead guitar, which he's most known for. Sitar, dulcimer, various keyboard instruments such as the piano, mellotron, and, and mellotron, marimbe. Wind instruments such as harmonica, recorder, saxophone, drums, <laughs> vocals, and numerous other things. This guy was like a musician. You know what I mean? Like, it's crazy how many things he played and was like I well-versed like in. <laughs> I like to play. <laughs> After he, found, um, uh, he found the, uh, founded the Rolling Stones as a British blues outfit in 1962 and gave the band its names. Jones, his name, or its name, sorry. Jones' fellow band members, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, began to take over the band's musical direction, especially after they became a successful songwriting team. Jones also did not... Fucking pushed him out. Yep. Jones also did not get along with the band's manager, Andrew Lug Oldham, who pushed the band into a musical direction at odds with Jones's blues background. You see, we're going to have you dance in the streets with David Bowie in trench coats. (laughs) And it's not going to make any sense. It's going to be hot and steamy. I don't like it. I'm out of the band. Yeah. So when Jones developed alcohol and drug problems, his performance in the studio became increasingly unreliable, leading to a diminished role within the band he had founded. In June 1969, the Rolling Stones dismissed Jones. Guitarist Mick Taylor took his place in the group, and Jones died less than a month later, drowning in the swimming pool at his home. The coroner's report lists the cause of 
uh, his death as death by misadventure. Think, think about this for a second. <sighs> Just think about where fucking you, heartbreak, and that's how he. That's not, how you die, right? Dude. But think about this for a second. Think about what you were doing when you were twenty-seven years old. This fucking guy had already learned how to play a dickload of instruments. Yeah. Founded the fucking Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. Got kicked out of the Rolling Stones. And then drank himself to death by drowning in a pool. Yeah. It's pretty rock. That's rock and a roll. fucking life. That's a hardcore life. In 27 life years. That's, that's like a punk rock song. Yeah, that's, that's fucking insane. That's rock and roll, man. That's what rock and roll used to be. You know, unfortunately, the death. But I'm saying the rest of that. It's like, just, I mean, it's that era, man. Yeah. Like you listen to the like the 60s and 70s. Like that's what it was, man. Yeah. Well, it's crazy. so that was the 60s. And speaking of the yep. 70s, we're actually heading into the 70s now. All right. Whoa. And the 70s would see many 27 Club deaths and many being big names. Um, the first death, first, <laughs> the first death, <laughs> the first death we come across. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> the first death we come across in the 70s is Alan Blind Al Wilson. He was an American musician, best known as the co-founder, leader, co-lead singer, and primary composer of the blues band Canned Heat. Which Ooh. yeah, I, I know Candy. Yeah. of course. Yeah. See, this is one of those ones where I'm like, I know I've heard their shit, and they it mentions two of their popular songs. As soon as I put them on, I'm like, fuck, all right, yeah, that's who that is. So now he sang and played harmonica and guitar with the group uh, and the group uh, live and on recordings. Wilson was the lead singer for the group's two biggest U.S. hit singles, "On the Road Again" and "Going Up the Country." Now, "On the Road Again." Made famous by uh, not the same song. It's not the same song. The same no, song. really. I double checked that as well. Really? Yeah, it's not the same. Not thinking on but, the road again. But going but up the country. Definitely, you've definitely heard both of those songs. Really? Yeah, that, that that going, going up, up the country is a Woodstock anthem. It's like <laughs> exactly. It's been in a bunch of like car, oh yeah, car commercials and shit. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Now nah, okay, I know that one for you've sure. Heard, you've heard the other one too. You've heard on the road again. Hey, you're yeah. going to San Francisco. Yeah, brother, get in. All right. <laughs> Dude's got a very distinct voice. Very. For sure. So the next to hit us in the 70s is going to be the next guy we discuss here a little bit more in depth. And this is the legendary Jimmy fucking Hendrix. So there is a lot we could cover on Jimmy. All right. Like a, probably an entire episode's worth. Um, we found this bio on his website and figured it was a pretty good way to get the discussion rolling on Jimmy. And it goes as follow. All right. Follows. Sorry. Quote, widely recognized as one of the most creative and influential musicians of the 20th century, Jimi Hendrix pioneered the explosive possibilities of the electric guitar. Hendrix's innovative style of combining fuzz, feedback, and controlled distortion created a new musical form. Because he was unable to read or write music, that's right, unable to read or write music. You don't it, need to be able to write or read that. music. No, you truthfully <laughs> <for> don't. posers. <laughs> <laughs> it is nothing short of remarkable that Jimi Hendrix's me, uh, meteor... meteor, meteor Fuck. He was also so close, so close. He was also one of the first popular left-handed guitarists, which is was pretty rare back then. Right. His yeah, meteoric back, back then, rise. People still thought you were the devil if you were left-handed. Right. Yeah. Meteoric. I got meteoric. it. Meteoric got rise. It? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And the music took place in just four <laughs> short years, it, which is crazy to think yeah. about. Like you don't, four see, years. That's the other thing you don't think about some of these people: how fast it went for them. Yeah. And that's that's live like, fast and leave a. Yeah. Good looking corpse. Is that how it goes? I mean, yeah, that's that's what they did. His musical language continues to influence a host of modern musicians from George Clinton to Miles Davis and Steve Vai to Johnny Lang. Gary Clark Jr. Yeah. He's awesome. Yeah. I highly recommend checking him out. If you're a remote fan of Jimi Hendrix, Gary Clark Jr. is amazing. He's the one that did 
it's the rest of his music isn't like this, but you know, they all do the sellout songs. He did that, uh, <laughs> come together version for yeah. the, D- yep. the DC movie. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that the really cool, heavy <laughs> version, yeah. but his other music is really good. You Michael like Jackson, it? is that you? <laughs> anyway, so Jimi Hendrix, born Johnny Allen Hendrix at 10.15 a.m. on November 27, 1942 at Seattle's King County Hospital, was later renamed James Marshall by his father, James Al Hendrix. Young Jimmy, as he was referred to at the time, took an interest in music, drawing um, influence from virtually every major artist at the time, including B.B. King, Muddy Waters, Holland Wolf, Buddy Holly and Robert Johnson. That's a great lineup. Entirely self-taught, Not Jimmy's bad. inability to read music made him concentrate even harder on the music he heard. Al, that's his dad, took notice of Jimmy's interest in the guitar, in the guitar, recalling, quote, I used to have Jimmy clean up the bedroom all the time while I was gone, and when I would come home, I would find a loot of broom straws around the foot of the bed. I'd say to him, well, didn't you sweep up the floor? And he'd say, oh, yeah, he did. But I'd find out later that he used to be sitting at the end of the bed there and strumming the broom like he was playing a guitar. <laughs> Al found an, uh, an old one-string ukulele, which he gave to Jimmy to play a huge, uh, a huge improvement over the broom. Obviously, you know, even if it's one string, it's better than a broom. At least you got a string. Yeah, man. you got something to make some noise. By the summer of 1958, Al had purchased Jimmy a five-dollar secondhand acoustic guitar from one of his friends. Shortly thereafter, Jimmy joined his first band, the Velvetones. After a three-month stint with the group, Jimmy left to pursue his own interests. The following summer, Al purchased Jimmy his first electric guitar, a Supro Ozark 1560S. Jimmy used it when he joined the Rocking Kings. In 1961, Jimmy left home to enlist in the, U- uh, the U.S. Army and in November 1962 earned the right to wear the Screaming Eagles patch for the paratroop division, which is fucking awesome. Yeah, that's crazy, Like man. The guy was a fucking paratrooper. Yeah. Like, Jesus. <laughs> While stationed at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, Jimmy formed the King Casuals with bassist Billy Cox. After being discharged due to an injury he received during a parachute jump, Jimmy began working as a session guitarist under the name Jimmy James. By the end of 1965, Jimmy had played with uh, several marquee acts, including Ike and Tina Turner, Sam Cooke, the Isley Brothers, and Little Richard, which is fucking just epic, dude. Jimmy Jimmy parted ways with Little Richard to form his own band, Jimmy James and the Blue Flames shedding the role of the backline guitarist for the spotlight of lead guitar. Throughout the latter half of 1965 and into the first part of 1966, Jimmy played the the rounds of smaller venues throughout Greenwich Village, catching up with the Animals bassist Chaz Chandler during a July performance at Café Wa. It's literally called Café Wa? Wa? W-H-A. Wa? And there's a question mark. Literally, that's what it's called. Yeah, Wa? (laughs) Where are you going? Café Wa? Chandler was impressed with Jimmy's performance and returned again in September 1966 to sign Hendrix to an agreement that would have him move to London to form a new band. Switching gears from bass player to manager, Chandler's first task was to change Hendrix's name to Jimmy, J-I-M-I. Featuring drummer drummer Mitch Mitchell and bassist Noel Redding, the newly formed Jimmy Hendrix experience quickly became the talk of London in the fall of 1966. The experience's first single, Hey Joe, spent 10 weeks. Yeah, it's a great song. Spent 10 weeks on the UK charts, topping out at spot number six in early 1967. The debut single, the debut, debut single, the debut, debut. Gary, Gary Debussy? Debut, debut Idaho. 
<laughs> the debut single was quickly followed by the release of a full-length album, Are You Experienced, a psychedelic mus musical compilation featuring anthems of a generation. Are You Experienced has remained one of the most popular rock albums of all time, featuring tracks like Purple Haze, The Wind Cries Mary, Foxy Lady, Fire, and Are You Experienced. So think about this again. Do you can you imagine your first album that you ever put out being that fucking incredible? Just that album? iconic for like That's, the it, remainder of time. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's lightning in a bottle, man. They yeah. talk about it all Most the time. Most bands are lucky to get one minor hit off an album, even if they're like a bigger band. Yeah. Dude, Hendrix just threw down one of the greatest fucking albums ever in one shot. You know, it's, Hendrix, it's incredible, man. man. Yep. Although Hendrix experienced uh, overwhelming success in Britain, it wasn't until he returned to America in June 1967 that he ignited the crowd at the Monterey International Pop Festival with his incendiary performance of Wild Thing. Literally overnight, the Jimi Hendrix experience became one of the most popular and highest grossing touring acts in the world. Again, talking about things just happening so Shit. fast. Absolutely. Like just quick, like you come home and immediately you're huge. You're just fucking huge. Hendrix um, followed Are You Experienced with Axis, Bold as Love. Uh, by 1968, Han uh, Hendrix had taken greater control over the direction of his music. He spent considerable, considerable time working the consoles in the studio with each turn of a knob or flick of the switch, bringing clarity to his vision. Again, this is a guy who cannot read music whatsoever. Or you know write I mean? it. Or write it. He can't read or write right. music. Like so he's, he's in, behind in the, the board. Fact. He's just got that ear. Yep. It's all by ear, man, which is just, it's, I don't know. I can't read or write music, to be honest with you. I can't. I Every can't song I've ever been I, a part of is. I can't read or write. I can read tablets. Uh, that's true. Sorry, <laughs> Moody. Sorry. It's okay. God, I feel so bad. That's all right, man. Yeah, like tab. But I mean, that's because I know all the notes. You know what I mean? That's. Right. Who, who's tab? I don't know this guy. It's a drink. It's bat backwards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You remember Di in. Uh, Diet tab. Diet tab. <laughs> <laughs> from, uh, from Back to the Future. Tab for what? <laughs> so back in America, Jimi Hendrix built his own recording studio, Electric Lady Studios in New York City. Electric Lady, Lady Studios became uh, a... Electric Lady Land. Yeah. Well, that's not what it says in here. It's Lady Land. Oh, no, I'm sorry. The studio was Electric Lady. Yes. Bad. You're right. Are you sure? Not I just bad. watched yeah. a documentary on it not too long ago. Okay, hold on here. I'm reading. The name of this project became the basis for his mu most demanding musical release, a two-LP yeah, collection, Electric Lady Land. That was the album. Right. Uh, same thing. Throughout 1968, the demands of touring and studio work took its toll on the group, and in 1969, the experience disbanded. The summer of 1969 brought emotional and musical growth to Jimi Hendrix. In playing the Woodstock Music and Art Fair in August 1969, Jimi joined forces with an eclectic ensemble called Gypsy Sun and Rainbows, featuring Jimi Hendrix, Mitch Mitchell, Billy Cox, Juma Sultan and Jerry Velez. The Woodstock performance was highlighted by the renegade version of Star Spangled Banner, which brought the mud-soaked audience to a frenzy. Which, if you think about it, Fuck especially yeah, in that time in a, that 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 time when Vietnam was going on, yep. Jimi Hendrix, a black man playing a left-handed guitar, gets on stage, At plays dawn. the Star Spangled Banner, and every fucking person paid attention. Everybody. There was no boo. It was whoa. You know, he almost didn't make it too, by the way. Oh, yeah? I have a, a Woodstock documentary that I like to watch from time to time. It's really good. But uh, he, they almost didn't get him in like on, he didn't on the get, last day. Oh, oh really? really? Yeah. 
they because they had to fly helicopter they had the helicopter people in because right. the the roads were just for as far as I could see were parked cars from cars everybody there. I know yeah. the stones almost didn't make it. So they had they the helicopter to everybody in and yeah. he almost didn't make it. That's, That's crazy. Awesome, yeah. It's so awesome. Dude. I mean, and again, such and you could still when you hear that version of his, you know it's his. Yeah. And it's just it's it's and timeless. The other thing absolutely I, timeless. The other thing you take out of that is the Jimi Hendrix experience is essentially what he is really known for. They were around for like a year and a half. Yeah. They did all that shit in a year and a half. Yep. They, they were killing and it they back were like, then. like, yeah, we're good. Let's fucking let's do something else. Yep. Back then, though, people <laughs> people were into music differently than they are now. Like, yeah. people go now like, oh, yeah, I love music. No, people back then, they breathed. They lived music. It's like, everything. iTunes or Spotify. If you were doing it back in the day, like, you did it because you fucking loved it. it, it was your you passion. didn't do it to make money. You did it because you fucking loved it. Because it was not easy right. to become and anything the, in music And the listeners, the people that were into it, man, they would follow these these tours and these these artists yeah, around. The, like the Grateful know? Dead, man. Yep. Absolutely. So 1969 also brought about a new and defining collaboration between or featuring Jimi Hendrix on guitar, bassist Billy Cox, and electric flag drummer Buddy Miles. Performing as the Band of Gypsies, this trio launched a series of four New Year's performances on December 31st, 1969 and January 1st, 1970. So four different performances in like two days. <laughs> yeah, that's ridiculous. Highlights from these performances were compiled and later released on the quintessential Band of Gypsies album in mid-1970 and the expanded Hendrix live at the Fillmore East in 1999. As 1970 progressed, Jimmy brought back dr uh, drummer, drummer Mitch Mitchell to the group and together with Billy Cox on bass, this new trio once again formed the Jimi Hendrix Experience. In the studio, the group recorded several tracks for another two LP set, tentatively titled First Rays of the New Rising Sun. Unfortunately, Hendrix was unable to see the musical vision th uh, through to com uh, completion due to his hectic worldwide touring schedules, then his unfortunate tragic death on September 18, 1970. Fortunately, the recordings Hendrix slated for release on the album were finally issued through the support of his family and original studio engineer Eddie Kramer on the 1997 release First Rays of the New Rising Sun. From demo recordings to finished masters, Jimi Hendrix generated an amazing collection of songs over the course of his short career. The music of Jimi Hendrix embraced the influences of blues, ballads, rock, R&B, and jazz, a collection of styles that continue to make Hendrix one of the most popular figures in the history of rock music. End quote. That was all his bio. You know what I mean? I like wonder that's, why they scrapped that's the movie. Because Andre 3000 was supposed to play him. I oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wonder why they, they scrapped it. I don't know. Either maybe that they just didn't release it. I don't know. Yeah, that's something to do with like uh, licensing or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I don't know. Because that would have been pretty good. should look into that. Hendrix died, unfortunately, due to drug-related asphyxiation. Definitely a major loss to the music world and world in general. Eric Burden of the band The Animals claimed it was suicide, but other friends dispute that, saying he had been relatively settled at the time. His system had Vesperax, an atypical antipsychotic and sedative in it, but he would not have died from nine pills. If he wanted to die, he'd have taken all of those that he had in his pocket. Excessive drinking was also ruled out. Some believe that he was killed by the FBI through their counter-subversive behavior program, as he'd uh, been seen at subversive events. Uh, he had publicly called on Black Panther activists to shoot Washington up. A conspiracy theory uh, from the government and mafia, mafia carries some credibility, and uh, he could have been targeted by some of those close to him or for money. And uh, then again, maybe not. Wow! We'll be right back after this message. 
And now we return to your regularly scheduled program. Wow. <laughs> so the next death we see in the 70s was another major player in the music scene at the time. Roughly two weeks after Hendrix died, we lost the great Janis Joplin. Joplin was an American singer-songwriter who sang rock, soul, and blues music. Think about that. Two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks after two you lose. Weeks. And this is the time back when, like, <laughs> these were huge rock stars that just got done playing Woodstock and this, this big, huge event, and they're just world-known, and then two weeks apart. Yep. Just crazy. So Joplin was an American singer-songwriter, like I said, who rang, uh, sang rock, soul, and blues music. One of the most successful and widely known rock stars of her era. She was noted for her powerful mezzo-soprano vocals and electric stage presence, which she is just amazing live. Yeah, if you see any like live videos. Oh, yeah. Her, She's just awesome. great. And that voice, man, it's just incredible. You could pick it out of a freaking lineup, dude. So amazing. In 1967, Joplin rose to fame following an appearance at Monterey Pop Festival, where she was the lead singer of the then little-known San Francisco psychedelic rock band Big Brother and the Holding Company. After releasing two albums with the band, she left Big Brother to continue as a solo artist with her own backing groups. First, the Cosmic Blues Band, and then the Full Tilt Boogie Band. Such a great name. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Full awesome. Tilt Boogie Band. It's so awesome. She appeared at the Woodstock Festival and the Festival Express Train Tour. Five singles by Joplin reached the Billboard Hot 100, including a cover of the Chris Christopherson song, Me and Bobby McGee which reached number one in March 1971. That dude wrote a lot of popular music. Chris Christopherson? Yeah, he, he was did. one of the highwaymen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, he wrote for Willie Nelson. I mean, dude, he wrote for... But he eight. was an actor. Yeah, I mean, he was an actor. Yeah, he was in That dude was... Stuff. Talk about all around. And he was in Blade, which was he great. Was. Yeah, yeah, yes, dude. Oh, Love that. Dude, so good. He was fun. What's the, what was his name in Blade? Fucking... Uh, Whisper. Whistler. Whistler. Whistler, Whistler yeah. Whisper. You were close, dude. Yeah. Uh, her most popular songs include her cover versions of Peace of My Heart. Love that song. Cry Baby. Love that song. <laughs> Down on Me, Ball and Chain, and Summertime. And her original song, you guys know it. Lord, oh, Lord, won't you buy me, me a Mercedes Benz? song is so good. I have no doubt. <laughs> Which was, unfortunately, her final recording. Joplin died of an accidental heroin overdose in 1970. After releasing three albums, uh, excuse me, after releasing three albums. A fourth album, Pearl, was released in January 1971, just over three months after her death. It reached number one on the Billboard charts. So she was posthumously inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Po posthumously. In, it's posthumously. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Don't mollycoddle it. Ah, that doesn't work there. That kind of does. It does not I kind of think it does. It He's just going to shit all over word of the day. It just <laughs> doesn't matter. I will give you credit if you use it properly. All right, all right. So it was after her death, okay, in 1995 that she was actually inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. All right, but think about that too. Her album after she passed away reached number one yeah. on Billboard charts. You know what well, I mean? Nothing, makes you, nothing to, makes you more famous than dying. Right, man. that's true. That's I mean, look exactly at Tupac. Say. Yeah, look at Tupac when he came out with his, what was that, the Machiavelli or whatever it is? Yeah. Wasn't that after he passed away? Yeah. yeah. He had like three albums come out after he died. Right. Like, apparently, he's got a bunch of other material still sitting around, Supposedly, too. Yeah. He's still alive, yes, Chris Rominski. <laughs> he might still be, man. He's hanging out somewhere. It's possible. Rolling Stone ranked Joplin number 46 on its 2004 list of the 100 greatest artists of all time and number 28 on its 2008 list of 100 greatest singers of all time. Yeah. She remains one of the top-selling musicians in the United States with Recording Industry Association of America certifications of 15.5 million 
fucking albums sold. So Holy think, shit. Think about that, man. You you made music in the 60s. You died a couple years after really getting going. At the top of your game, you, you died. And years later, in fucking 2020, you're still one of the highest selling American artists of all time. Like, that's fucking bonkers, man. And it's crazy to me that these uh, younger people that like they so they come into my establishment or whatever and all of a sudden you'll hear mercedes benz come on or me and bobby mcgee like you know like she is people know that shit very relevant and prevalent man she still is and and they always like like people like her and like grateful the grateful dead to them for they're still kind of like around doing their thing in different i feel like that's very niche though different but like those bands and like Jimi hendrix and like some of the other people that we'll talk about died so long ago but kids younger kids these days still get into it still eat it because because it was such good music right that it's been listened to constantly over and over and over and over for me it was stevie ray vaughn and and marvin Gaye. it doesn't go anywhere yeah stevie ray vaughn and marvin Gaye for me good music does not go anywhere so found some cool facts about old janice here like the whiskey company southern comfort gifted her with a lynx coat for all of the free advertising and boosted sales <laughs> due to her always having a bottle with her. <laughs> That's amazing. Like you, First of all, you know you're a badass bitch. That's crazy. When you're walking around, you, you constantly got your bottle yep. and then the company goes, you know what? Here's a really expensive coat because our sales wow. went way the fuck up. And hell, she even smashed a bottle of the stuff over Jim Morrison's head. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Leaving him saying, quote, what a great woman. She's terrific. <laughs> and getting her phone number from her producer and that's Janice. Amazing. That's awesome. She was not interested at <laughs> all. Dude, could you imagine that super couple? Oh, yeah. Jim Morrison and fucking Janice Joplin. They reproduced. Can you imagine the kids? God. Fuck. Oh, well, you know what? Maybe they'd still be here if they Maybe. actually got together. You know? Maybe, man. Yeah, so... In a weird foreshadowing of events, Janice wrote out her last will and testament just days before her death. In it, she left her buddies each $1,500 to throw a rowdy ash drinking party. That's <laughs> fucking That's awesome, epic. Dude. And after her death, Joplin's ashes were actually scattered across the Pacific Ocean by airplane. Like, dude, that's freaking phenomenal. I'm going you know to mean? leave you guys everything I have to throw a killer party. Yeah, I want you guys to throw a freaking party. You it's know only going to be like yeah, 15 bucks, it. so it's probably going to have to be like Natty Light, but still. <laughs> Still, get in on it. Hey, party's a party, dude. Yeah. You know what I mean? <clears throat> Absolutely. We'll make sure to get the champagne up here, right. buddy. Fuck yeah, dude. Champagne all I around. Left. That's right. That's <laughs> right. So that was Janice Joplin. Of course, she was absolutely amazing. If you guys have not listened to her, make Absol- sure you. It was absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> she was the best. <laughs> Super sweet. And truthfully, if you guys out there, if you passengers are not familiar with the uh, the people we're talking about, I'll say there's a reason we're talking around. about them. Get out there and listen to them. Get it. You know, you may find something that you're like, holy shit, why have I never heard of this before? Even you know? some of like the newer people that we that we're gonna cover, like that that died more recently, dude, give them a listen, man. Check them out. You might like some of this. One hundred percent. So moving on here. On March 13th, 1971, lead singer and bassist of funk band Dyke and the Blazers, Arlister Dyke Christian, was murdered, unfortunately. Murdered. Murdered. There's, there's been actually, a murder in so Louisiana. Aside, aside from all the drug deaths, there's been a lot of these people that were fucking murdered. Yeah, there's a lot of murders involved in this stuff, too. Yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty fucked up. Not going to lie. He was pre- preparing to leave for a European tour with Barry White. Barry White. Oh, yeah. Barry White, baby. Yeah. I'll sing like this. Mm. Whoa. Why? <laughs> I don't know. Whatever. When, uh, when he was fatally shot in Phoenix. That sucks. 
At first, um, the first thought was to be a no drug related. No one wants to die in Phoenix. <laughs> Listen, if you're in Phoenix, yeah, you do. <laughs> Phoenix listeners, sorry, but dude, it's fucking hot out there. Like it is hot. You think it's hot here? It was 94 yesterday and today. It's fucking hot. And they're like, oh, it's a dry heat. Fuck you. Yeah, well, when it's 115, it's fucking hot, regardless of <laughs> Listen, the humidity. I may have actually said the, the story on the uh, the show before, but we were out in um, the Phoenix area one time, and I was, uh, uh, I forget who I was with, but the owner of a club out there broke, took an egg, took an egg out, went out to a rock outside, broke it on the <laughs> egg, on the, the rock, and it started cooking. Like, that's how fucking hot it is. I don't know. Phoenix I, people, it's fucking hot. I don't, I don't know if it was the same, same time, but I remember, I, I think it was that tour that we were on together. We got out to Phoenix and we we went to load in at like I think it was like nine or ten in the morning. And it was already maybe like, that was. Were, were was you like with us? It was like one hundred and twelve degrees already. Yeah, and the fucking AC in the club was broken. Yep, yep, yep. I, that's you were there. <laughs> yeah. it was so, ridiculous. Yeah. So at first they thought it was a, a drug related killing, and uh, the shooting was ruled to have been in self defense. So his song "Let a Woman Be a Woman" was sampled by Tupac for his song "If My Homies Call," which is a great song, and referred to by Prince. And his song, get off 23 positions in a one night stand. Get up. Dude, sorry. I love Prince. Fuck, mm-hmm. I love Prince. So next up is another heavy hitter and probably one of my favorites that we're actually going to talk about on this. The aforementioned Jim Morrison. There's a there's a good picture in there for you. But yeah, I yeah, I saw that. Yeah. So born in Florida, Morrison was a military brat. He spent time growing up in Florida, California, Virginia, New Mexico, Texas, and back to California before finally getting back to Virginia to graduate high school. A voracious leader, voracious, 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 voracious. <laughs> it was voracious, I fucking tell you. Yeah, voracious, voracious, okay, whatever. Reader from an early age, Morrison was particularly inspired by the writings of several philosophers and poets. He was influenced by Frederick Nietzsche, whose views on aesthetics, morality, and the Apollonian and Dionysian Dionysian duality <laughs> would appear in his conversation, poetry, and song. So that he was a total like literary a thinker, man. nerd for sure. He was um, deep, some of, deep thoughts, deep, deep by Jack Handy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> some of his formative influences were Plutarch's Parallel Lives and the works of the French symbolist poet Arthur Rimbaud whose style would later influence the form of Morrison's short prose poems. He was also influenced by William S. Burroughs, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, Louis Ferdinand Celine, Lawrence Ferlingetti, fucking shit, Ferlinghetti, Charles Baudelaire, Moliere, Franz Kafka, Albert Camus, <laughs> Hanore del Balzac, Balzac, really? <laughs> Uh, table for Balzac. Table for Balzac. I read. I read that. <laughs> Balzac, dude. I read that. The only thing I could think of was Guar because the one dude's name is <laughs> Balzac, Balzac. Jaws yeah. of Death. And Jean Cocteau. <laughs> Cocteau Balzac. Your table's ready. <laughs> Cocteau Balzac. Cocteau Balzac. <laughs> Along with most of the French existentialist uh, philosophers. His senior year, English teacher said, quote, Jim read as much and probably more than any student in class. But everything he read was so offbeat, I had another teacher who was going to the Library of Congress check to see if the books Jim was reporting on uh, reporting on actually existed. Dude, how fucking awesome is that? <laughs> Can you imagine being so like, like, just kind of out there in what you do that you're writing book reports on shit that your English teacher has no idea even exists. Yeah. <laughs> like that's I mean, fucking amazing. The dude was smart, man. Um, 
she actually suspected that um, he was making them up as they were English books on 16th and 17th century demonology. And we never heard of, uh, she, she had never heard of them. Um, sorry, this is her quote. I'd never heard of them, but they existed. And I'm convinced from the paper he wrote that he read them and the Library of Congress would have been the only source. So this guy, like just a genius, man. Morrison <laughs> went to live with his paternal grandparents in Clearwater, Florida and attended St. Petersburg Junior College. In 1962, he transferred to Florida State University in Tallahassee and appeared in a school recruitment film. While at FSU, Morrison was arrested for dis- disturbing the peace while drunk at a home football game wanna, on September 28th, 1963. I want to copy that recruitment film. Yeah, that'd be a great... Just to see him Just in to it. see him. Yeah. He'd be like, hey, <laughs> you guys should all come here. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I feel like that's how Jim Morrison talked. You know, probably, probably. Because when you listen to him, just got that sultry, I'm way smarter than you. <laughs> Kind of tone in his voice, yeah. right? You know, Morrison completed his undergraduate degree at UCLA's film school within the theater arts department of the College of Fine Arts in 1965. At the end of the graduation ceremony, he went to Venice Beach and the university mailed his diploma to his mother in Coronado, California. He made several short films while attending UCLA, which is awesome. Yeah. First Love, the first of these films made with Morrison's classmate and roommate, Max Schwartz, was released to the public when it appeared in a documentary about the film Obscura. During these years, while living in Venice Beach, he befriended writers at the Los Angeles Free Press, for which he advocated until his death in 1971. He conducted a lengthy and in-depth interview with Bob Korosh and Andy Kent, both working for the Free Press. Sorry, folks, my mouth's going faster than my brain. At the, at the time, and was planning on visiting the headquarters of the busy newspaper shortly before leaving for Paris. So in the summer of 1965, after graduating with a bachelor's degree from the UCLA Film School, Morrison led a bohemian lifestyle in Venice Beach, living on the rooftop of a building inhabited by his old UCLA cinematography friend, Dennis Jacobs. He wrote the lyrics of many of the early songs The Doors would later perform live and record on albums such as Moonlight Drive and Hello, I love you because you tell me your name. <laughs> Supposedly, he lived on canned beans and LSD for several months. Dude, that's that's like one of my favorite parts of this whole story. It's Can like, you imagine? He just Bro, sat, what diet are you doing? He sat on a rooftop eating canned beans and, and fucking LSD. dropping acid for, for several months. <laughs> Rock and roll, baby. Morrison and fellow UCLA student Ray Manzarek were the first two members of The Doors, forming the group during that summer. They had met months earlier as cinematography students. The story claims that Manzarek was lying on the beach at Venice one day where he accidentally encountered Morrison. He was impressed with Morrison's poetic lyrics, claiming that they were, quote, rock group material. Subsequently, guitarist Robbie Krieger and drummer John Densmore joined. Krieger auditioned at Densmore's recommendation and was then added to the lineup. Okay, so the Doors took their name from the title of Aldous Huxley's book, The Doors of Perception. A reference to the unlocking of doors of perception through psychedelic drug use. So this is, he was all about drugs and this LSD and opening the third eye. You know what I mean? Like he was, he was, come on, come on. Sorry. Sounds like a mush mouth record. Although Morrison was known as the lyricist of the group, Krieger also made significant lyrical contributions, writing or co-writing some of the group's biggest it's hits. It's like fucking Ringo. I wrote a song. <laughs> it's about Octopus's Garden. No, Ringo, go. Shut up, Ringo! Yeah. Ringo, go lay down. You need a nap. Yeah. 
No, so, I'll play the drums again on the album this time, Ringo. You just sit there and look pretty. Ringo, take a nap. It's okay. So uh, these hits included uh, Light My Fire, Love Me Two Times, Love Her Madly, and Touch Me. On the other hand, Morrison, who did not write most songs using an instrument, would come up with vocal melodies for his own lyrics with the other band members contributing chords and rhythm. You know who else did that? Who's that? Michael Jackson. <laughs> did you ever watch his... Uh, oh, yeah. It? This Is It? This Is It, Where, yeah. like, the guitar is playing. He's like, no, do it like this. <laughs> like, he's, like, playing it oh, with yeah. his mouth, you know? Because it, it, And again, Morrison did not play... He didn't play an instrument live, except for maracas and tambourine for most shows and harmonica on a few different ones, or in the studio, ex- excluding maracas, hand claps, things like that. Um, so he didn't play an instrument <laughs> either. It sounds to me like he really didn't read or write music oh, no. either. No, no, no. It seemed like it was all about the melody that he was just putting out there, like Michael. You know yeah. what I mean? Like just like we were talking earlier with Jimi Hendrix. Like you hear it, yeah, you hear it. But you know, so you you know what it's like to record in the studio. Oh yeah. Imagine like you go in there and like, all right, maracas, take forty-five, roll it. <laughs> Nope, nope, you're off, you're Shit. off. Do it again. It's Roll that, back. It's the 16th one yeah. where you're like... In the padded room by yourself. Fuck! Yeah. You drop it. Yeah. Can't you just loop that? No. You do it organically. I'm not cutting the tape. Fucking do it over. Yeah, back then, they were cutting tape, which fuck that. So um, he did play, however, uh, the grand piano on Orange County Suite and a Moog synthesizer on Strange Days. Moogs are badass. Yeah, Moogs are sweet. It's such an original sound, man. Jim Morrison derived a lot of his stage performance by watching Van Morrison during a stint. The Doors had opening for Van Morrison at the Whiskey in Los Angeles in 1966. I did not know it, but Van Morrison is... He was around everybody. I do not like Van Morrison. Not a fan. Not a fan. But... You have to you're, respect You're him. absolutely right. He was in a lot of things, man. He, he was, was involved with the Eagles. It, excuse me, I was, Eagles. I was reading about that, too, and they did. It was like a four or five night like house kind of gig at the Whiskey. So they, they played sold out shows five, four or five nights in a row at the Whiskey opening for Van Morrison. That's amazing. So later, this was noted by Brian Hinton in his book, uh, Celtic Crossroads, The Art of Van Morrison. Quote, Jim Morrison learned quickly from his near namesake stagecraft. His apparent recklessness, his air of subdued menace, the way he would improvise poetry to a rock beat, even his, even if, ugh, even his habit of crouching down by the bass drum during instrumental breaks. So he got most of his stage antics from, from Van, Van Morrison. Morrison. From early, early Van Morrison. Yeah. That's pretty fucking awesome. What, did he fucking go crouch down from the bass drum, brown-eyed girl? Because it was <laughs> rocking so hard. Oh! That's he, great! Do it again. He's doing the corn fucking the new metal girl. the new metal slouch or whatever yeah. they call it. Yeah. Do, do, do. So the Doors achieved national recognition <laughs> after signing with Electra Records in 1967. The single "Light My Fire" spent three weeks at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in July August of 1967. This was a far cry from the Doors opening for Simon and Garfunkel or playing at a high school as they did in Connecticut that same year. Think about that shit. Tell You're, me you got the Sullivan show in here. Yep. Okay, good. Right yeah. good. So it's so awesome to me that you go from playing in the same year, opening for Simon and Garfunkel, which the doors do not even remotely no, that's a completely compare. Different, completely different thing. And playing a f- fucking high school. <laughs> <laughs> for fucking high school kids like what the fuck and then all yeah. of a sudden you're playing and the next year you're you bright light my fire and it blows up right that's what i'm saying all it takes is that yeah. one lightning in a bottle like jeff said yeah. right that's it so later the doors appeared on the ed sullivan show 
a popular Such Sunday a night story, dude. <laughs> a popular Sunday night variety series that had introduced the Beatles and Elvis Presley to the United States. Ed Sullivan, you guys, if you don't know Ed Sullivan, you know he he had the that Beatles, man. That was think, their big or here's, their big thing. In here's America. the best comparison: is think of American Idol back in the day. That was Ed Sullivan. Uh, Not well, competition-wise, no, but he was more of just popularity. a talk show guy. He was a talk show guy, so he was more so like your was Jay like, Leno. Or like Letterman, where they had or Letterman, popular yeah. bands come in right, and play. Right. Yeah, yeah. But that's where you would see all the upcoming artists and new yeah, people, which like, is what American Idol is. Not really. How many people have made millions and millions of dollars in records off American Idol? Like seven. More than that. <laughs> more than that. <laughs> seven. He pulled a number right out of his head. Yeah. Seven. One or one or possibly two per season. Now I understand what you're it. saying, but um, yeah. it, it was it, it was, was a, a it was a variety show. show. A yeah, show, but yeah, there was yeah. he broke the Beatles and and in, Elvis at least in America. In fact, wasn't his show um, the Ed Sullivan show where they had to have the camera above Elvis's waist? Yep. Yeah, because was, his yep. gyrations were too sexual. So so Ed Sullivan requested two songs from the doors for the show. People are strange and light my fire. Sullivan censors insisted that the doors change the lyrics of the song light my fire from girl. We couldn't get much higher to girl. We couldn't get much better name just for the television viewers. Cause of course this is back in, you know, long, long time ago, back leave when leave it to beaver. Times. Yeah. Where they were like, okay, you can't do that. That sounds swell, dad. Yeah. Um, and this was reportedly due to what was perceived as a reference beaver. to drugs in the original lyrics. Of course. <laughs> oh, beaver. Beef. It's like a fucking, what was it? In uh, revenge of the nerds, the joke that the guy says, it's like, what's the dirtiest thing ever said on television? I think you were a little bit hard on the beaver last night. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. So after giving assurances of compliance to the producer in the dressing room, the band agreed and proceeded to sing the song with the original lyrics. Sullivan was fucking pissed off and he refused to shake hands with Morrison or any other band member after their performance. Sullivan had a show producer tell the band that they would never appear on the Ed Sullivan show again. Morrison reportedly said to the producer in a defiant tone, awesome. Hey man, we just did the Sullivan show. So in other words, they're like, we're done, bro. Nice. We're fucking matter. We just did it. Yeah, we good. We good. It's one of the most iconic moments in like rock history. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh yeah. Absolutely. So in 1966, photographer Joel Brodsky took a series of black and white photos of Morrison in a photo shoot known as the Young Lion photo session. These photographs are considered among the most iconic images of Jim Morrison and are frequently used as covers for compilation albums, books, so, and other memorabilia of the Doors and Morrison. If I'm not mistaken, that's where that like real iconic one of him, like that close up with like his hair is kind of like feathered yeah. out and he's got that like look on. For sure. Like, that's where that came if from. If I'm not mistaken, I actually posted a thing on Instagram today and one of those pictures is that awesome. one Perfect. of those pictures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so in late 1967 at a concert in New Haven, Connecticut, he was arrested on stage in an incident that further added to his mystique and emphasized his rebellious image. After recording L.A. Woman in Los Angeles, Morrison joined Pamela Corson in Paris in March 1971 in an apartment she had rented for him at 1719 Rue Boutres in Les Marais, 4th Arrondissement, Paris. <laughs> sure to leave all that shit in just for you. I feel like I got that. I feel like I got like reading it like... That's not really important. I'm going to leave it in there because it'll be fun. Sorry, that room's taken. What do you mean it's taken? Balzac has it. <laughs> Balzac and cock too. Balzac and cock too. In letters, he described going for long walks through the city alone. Uh, during this time, he shaved his beard and lost some of the weight he had gained in the previous months. 
He died on July 3rd, 1971, of course, at the age of 27. Now, he was reportedly found by Corson in the bathtub of the apartment. The official cause of death was listed as heart failure, although no autopsy was performed as it was not required by French law. It has also been reported by several individuals who say they were eyewitnesses that his death was due to an accidental heroin overdose. This overdose purportedly took place at a club and was followed by certain individuals taking him back home and throwing him in the bathtub in order to try and revive him from the overdose. His death came two years to the day after the death of fellow 27 Club member, excuse me, Rolling Stones guitarist Brian Jones. Two years to the day. So two years to the day, and then think about that. Within two years, you had Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and Jim Morrison all fucking died. Yep, like some of the biggest names ever in that time period. That's ridiculous. That's and by the way, crazy, dude. I mentioned earlier that he was arrested. And uh, <laughs> did you did you read the story about that? Yes, and it's, we're going to talk about awesome, that. Man. We are going to talk about that in our uh, after the episode bonus yeah, episode for Patreon listeners. So you guys definitely don't want to miss that. And if you're not a Patreon subscriber, get in there and join up, man. It's fun. Five dollar make you holler. Five dollar. Wow. <laughs> So now listen, I got some cool facts about Jim Morrison here just before we go. Morrison had three dogs named Sage, Stoner, and Thor. It's amazing. His dog named Sage outlived both Morrison and his long-term girlfriend. Think about that. You get a dog that outlives (laughs) you and your girlfriend. Morrison was also reported to have 20 paternity suits against him. Oh, my God. (laughs) 20 paternity suits, yes. He was the first person to be arrested mid-performance. And he supposedly once pulled out uh, something that we're going to talk about in our after the episode. Mr. Mojo (laughs) Rising. Wow. We'll be right back after this message. Every morning. This episode of the Midnight Train podcast is sponsored by Aces Depot Bar and Grill. Aces Depot is not your typical corner bar. Conveniently located in beautiful and historic Olmsted Falls, Ohio, Aces Depot has raised the bar in hospitality, pub fare, and craft beer. Their vast menu and business information is available at aces-depot.com. So, stop in, grab a delicious gourmet burger or handcrafted pizza, and wash it down with one of their over 75 beers. Because at Aces Depot Bar and Grill, when you're here, you're family. So that's why I was like, but now we would have money. You know what I mean? To your regularly bag, scheduled program. Hole. They'll never find the body. You put the money in the ground and they'll um, never. Oh, got, we're, we're back. Oh, oh, oh sorry. Shit. Sorry. Uh, I mean, uh, um, yeah, paper uh, bags. They're can, good for uh, lunches. Um, just we'll, uh, we'll cut that. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, yeah, edit we'll, that we'll out, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. So in 1972, it saw a pair of deaths. Linda Jones was an American soul singer. She was known for her strong gospel influence style. Yes. She died on March 14th, 1972, due to complications from diabetes. 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 That's the first on the list. Diabetes. Yeah. Then we have Scottish guitarist and co-founder of the band Stone the Crows, Leslie Harvey, um, this, died this on... Fucking, this story frightens me, by the way. <laughs> died on May 3rd, 1972, while on stage with the band. He touched a microphone that was not grounded and was electrocuted. I've heard of this. I have a story about this. Fucking insane to think about the amount of times that all of us... Oh, yeah. I have a story about this. I was working at Peabody's and Soulfly and some chick-fronted metal band, and I can't remember who it was. Kitty. Walls of Jericho, maybe? Oh, they were great. Okay. I think it was Walls of Jericho. Walls of Jericho was awesome. So they're sitting there, and then all of a sudden, there's a short going on in the microphone, and somebody keeps getting the chick from Walls of Jericho as they're sound checking. It's like zapping them every time. Well, 
they couldn't get it fixed, so they had to cancel the show. Sold out. Place was packed. Holy shit. All of a sudden. I can't believe I didn't hear about yeah, this. My so, manager. So pretty big. My manager yeah. comes up and <laughs> comes up and says, Johnny, I need you to do me a favor. I'm like, what's that? He's like, get up there and tell all these people the show is canceled. And, gotta... <laughs> and I look at him for a second. I was like, you fucking Fuck kidding me? you, dude. He's like, dude, you're the only one I know that can get up there and you've got the personality and you can do this. Like, oh, whatever. Boy. Like, son of a bitch. So I get oh, up there. dude. I'm like, ladies and gentlemen, unfortunately, due to a technical issue, uh, we are going to have to cancel the show tonight. Instantly, boo, fuck you. Uh, I'm sorry. Your, your tickets will either be refunded or for a different date, yada, yada. Now, let me paint a picture real quick before you go further. Soulfly fans typically are caveman looking, dreadlock like <laughs> it's it's New very metal, like primitive fucking, yeah. metal. They're there to get the fuck down. They're big big dudes, and they're just like, oh, see, it's for cookie, you know. So <laughs> they're there to get down. So yeah. all of a sudden, a PBR, a full open PBR, comes flying out of the crowd and damn near hits me. I look over. I see the guy. I look over at my buddy Trevor, who is a huge bouncer dude, and I say, Trevor, get him. <laughs> <laughs> I will put it this way. So you saw the guy who threw it to you? Yes. I will put it this way. The guy probably feels that he should not have thrown that at me. I can imagine. Because it was not very... Back then... It wasn't as courteous of uh, let's let take people outside oh, kind no. of thing. I remember all those days. Yeah. Of so uh, yeah, people dra- getting drugged the fuck out. Right. Man. Yeah. So hey, you wise guy, you told PBR. And not only that, but I was just the, the little guy there that everybody you know. I made everyone laugh, and I was friends with everybody. And you know, if somebody messed with me, what it was am like I a clown. Yeah. Use you. <laughs> what am I a fucking clown? Huh? <laughs> Get your shine box. Sorry, that was. Just... You want to throw a fucking PBR? Pretty sure it was a <laughs> sausage box. But... Oh yeah. Sorry. So in 1973, saw another <laughs> pair of deaths, most notably that of Ron Pigpen McKernan on March 8th, 1973. McKernan was a founding member, keyboardist, and singer of The Grateful Dead. He died due to gastrointestinal hemorrhage associated with alcoholism. Oof, that does not sound... That's an internal explosion. Yeah, yeah that essentially, does yeah. Blood not death sound like... The inside, a, that's like you're standing there... <laughs> then you're done. It sounds like a horrible way to go. July 27, 1973, saw the death of Roger Roger Lee Durham of the R&B soul funk group Bloodstone. Yep. Durham was killed when he was thrown from a horse and died from his fucking injuries. Also, the only one of those on the list. Yes, another another one by itself on there. God, fucking horses. People, be careful. Stop feeding them peanut butter to make them talk. Please do not <laughs> ride. Please do not ride other animals. They don't like it. Apparently not. Freaking, what's his name? Christopher Reeves. He'll tell you that. Yeah. Yeah. Poor Superman. Or Keith Richards. Yeah. What? He comes from Smallville. <laughs> oh. A single death marks 1974. That death is Wallace Yone. Yone was the organ player of the jazz rock band Chase, best known for their song, Get It On. Now, is that Get It On? No, that's yeah. that's Bang Gong. Bang Gong. Yeah, bang, that's yeah, yeah. But I did, uh, I did listen to that song, and it did sound for like, that's another one of those, like, I looked it up to see... And apparently they were pretty pretty big, or at least decently big. Right. And that song sounded very familiar to me. Like, I know I've heard it somewhere before. Right. So We would be playing uh, snippets from these songs, folks, but... Uh, it would um, take forever. We, uh, it would take forever, but also and we don't want to... get sued. Yeah, we don't... Do you want to get sued? <laughs> so if you guys are interested, please go check these bands yeah. out, man. We can only play Ringo songs. Yeah. <laughs> so Yon... There's no claims on that shit. <laughs> Yon... Nobody fucking wants it. <laughs> I didn't fucking write it. I'd rather be. Yeah, they're, the they're looking at each other like, that wasn't me. No, that wasn't me. John, was that you? No, it wasn't me. I've got nothing to do with that one. 
So Young unfortunately died in a plane crash along with three other members of the band and two others. They were on their way to play a gig in Jackson County, Minnesota with band leader Bill Chase when their plane, a Piper Twin Comanche, came crashing down. He died on August 12, 1974. Rounding out the decade were the following deaths. Dave Alexander, bass player of legendary punk band The Stooges, he died of pulmon- of a pulmonary edema. Oof, oof. That's Yikes. another bad way to go. Ugh. Pulmonary. That's uh, lungs. Heart. heart? Pulmonary is your heart. So he is had it? a basically a like explosion in, or a, a blood clot, I'm not right? Sure exa- yeah, I'm not sure exactly what that means. It's We're not doctors, folks. Fucking hard. Yeah. Up. We're not fucking doctors. And if you guys know what it is, you don't need to tweet us and tell us anything. You could just, just let us let it, let, if let you it go. Do, if let you do go. know what it is, everybody... Send John a private message and let him know what it is. So Moody is Thank definitely that, not Moody. a doctor because pulmonary is the lungs. Is that it the correct. lungs? Yes. I don't know. I'm not my sister. What the fuck, man? Ooh, that was she a compliment knows. out there for she Melissa. Oh. She'll fix you up. Are you uh. referring to sugar butt? Who? Sugar butt. Am I friends? <laughs> She's my Are sister. Referring to Isa. Yeah, yes. sugar butt. Yeah. Which I have to give a huge shout out to her because she was the only one out of all y'all motherfuckers that came to Look, the graduation party. I, mean, I, it, it I is don't want to hear. I don't want to hear that shit. Axes, okay. Oh, well, I mean, at least you have an excuse. I do. <laughs> <laughs> so Pete Ham, keyboardist, guitarist, and leader of the band Badfinger, he died on April twenty fourth, nineteen seventy five. Heard of Badfinger? Badfinger is amazing. Absolutely love him. And unfortunately, he was due to suicide by hanging. Yeah. Uh, December 8th, 1975, saw the death of former Uriah Heep and Keith Hartley band bassist Gary Thane. Another band that most of you have heard at least one or two songs for from. For sure. Uriah Heep? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have an uh, album from them in my basement. Yeah, for sure. Uh, <laughs> Thane died of a heroin overdose. Shocker. Spanish singer uh, Cecilia died on August 2nd, 1967, or excuse me, 1976, due to a car accident. May 3rd, 1977, saw the death of Helmut Collin, which Helmut is such a fucking badass name. Like, what's your name? My name's Helmut. What? <laughs> like, Jesus. Basis for 70s prog rock band um, uh, Triumvirate. Triumvirate. Triumvirate? Is that what, how you would say? Okay. Moody's looking like, hey, I don't know what fucking weird. Uh, Chris Bell, singer, songwriter, and guitarist of power pop band Big Star, died on December 27, 1978 in yet another car accident. Rounding out the 70s was the, was the death of Xenon de Fleur. Guitarist for the British band The Count Bishops due to a yet another fucking car accident. Lots of car accidents. Lots as well. of car accidents. In the 70s, it sounds like people did not. Well, that's before Click It or Ticket. So maybe that's what it was. Yeah, maybe. You think? I don't know. Oh, plus a lot of people just drove around all fucked up. And- that's true. They didn't give a shit. <laughs> and back the then. cars yeah. were like fucking tanks of steel. <laughs> there was yeah. no airbags or brake yeah. points. It was just like a giant block of steel with wheels. <laughs> All right, so let's get into the 80s here. The 1980s saw seven Club 27 deaths here. All right. Jacob Miller, reggae artist and lead singer of the band Inner Circle, and you guys know that one, the band that did the song Bad Boys, although that was after Miller's death on March 23rd, 1980s. That one was like, la, 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 long, la, 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 long, 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 long. I've been watching you. I just want to say thanks for the soundbite for next week, buddy. Ooh, I want to make you sweat. <laughs> Sweating and not sweating no more. Yeah. yeah, it's a great song. You're welcome, man. I appreciate being immortalized in your... There you go. It makes me feel like I did something. <laughs> Actress Masako Nutsumi <laughs> passed away September 11th, 1985 due to leukemia, unfortunately. D. Boone, guitarist and lead singer of the punk band Minutemen, died in a van accident on December 22nd, 1985. Minutemen was also uh, also featured bass player Mike Watt, which I feel like most 
I feel like a lot of people have heard of Mike Watt. He's been in a lot of other bands. He's pretty pretty popular. Jam with there. Pearl Jam in like and the all those guys. In like the punk okay. circles and stuff. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Soviet poet, singer, songwriter, and guitarist, and a performer in Russian rock music, Alexander Boshlichev fell from his ninth floor apartment window in an apparent suicide on February seventeenth, nineteen eighty-eight. Jean Michael Besquet. Besquet. This is another guy. That I had, this is another guy that I had heard of. And like I heard, I know the name, name for and sure. I couldn't figure out where I heard it from, and then as soon as I started reading about it, it started to make sense. I was like, okay, that makes. I'm going to say it's Jean Michel Biscuit. Jean Michael Basquiat. Basquiat. Mm-hmm. Be- whatever. Biscuit. No, biscuit. I'm not going to say biscuit. That sounds horrible. Jan Michael Biscuit. <laughs> Jan Mi- Remember Jan Michael Vincent? <laughs> Is that Miami Vice? No, he was in uh, Airwolf. Remember oh, yeah. Airwolf? Jan Michael Vincent. <laughs> Fuck yeah, dude. That's how old. I am fucking helicopter show. Right. So this guy, Jan Mikhail or Mitchell Bisquet, um, was an American artist of Haitian and Puerto Rican descent. Uh, Bisquet, Bisquet, Bisquiet, Bas- Basquet. It's Basquet. Yeah. Bees quiet. Basquet, Bisquet. Basquet first achieved fame as part of um, Samo, S-A-M-A-O, S-A-M-O, an informal graffiti duo who wrote in enigmatic epigrams in the cultural hotbed of the Lower East Side of Manhattan during the late 1970s, where rap, punk, and street art coalesced into early hip-hop music culture. By the 1980s, his neo-expressionist paintings were being exhibited in galleries and museums internationally. He died of a speedball drug overdose on August 12, 1988. Ugh! God! Pete De God, I feel like you're just picking freaking names now. It's not my fault, man. <laughs> so he's just going... <laughs> it's not my fault. Pete DeFretas, uh, drummer for the legendary Echo and the Bunnymen, which I hope that some people have heard of them, yeah. died on June 14th, 1989 in a motorcycle accident. Echo and the Bunnymen are an English rock band formed in Liverpool in 1978. Very, very influential at the time. A yeah, lot of people sure. will cite them as an influence back then. Absolutely. Finbar Donnelly... That is an amazing name, by the way. Isn't it great? Fenbar Donnelly, vocalist and lyricist that for the. Dude, that dude drank a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Fenbar Donnelly. Anyway, he's a vocalist and lyricist for the Irish post punk band Five Go Down by the Sea. Died on June 18th, 1989, due to an accidental drowning. All right, so that rounds out the 80s. All right, we have another big hitter coming up here as the list goes on. It's time to dive into. The decade that made us as musicians and people our wonder years, I guess you'd so to speak, the 90s. Okay. We uh, all have fond memories of playing in bands, going to amazing shows, beginning the road life, and well, meeting each other, truthfully. You know, the 90s saw some big names pass away, um, some a part and some not a part of the 27 Club. We're only going to cover the uh, the 27 Club here because that's what this episode's about. And uh, the 90s begins with the death of Chris Austin. Chris was a country singer and guitarist fiddle player for Reba McIntyre. Austin toured with McIntyre until an airplane carrying Austin, six other members of McIntyre's band, and her road manager crashed into a nearby mountain after taking off from an airport in San Diego, California, killing all on board on March 16, 1991. Along with playing beside McIntyre, he was also an accomplished solo artist with three singles that charted on the Billboard Hot Country Songs chart. I'd never heard about that. So never heard about that one. That's crazy that I've never heard of that. I mean, obviously, the man was doing some good stuff. So you know, Reba McIntyre run in the country circles. So yeah, that's crazy. Like, Reba McIntyre is essentially the movie The Fly, where you have the two machines and Goldblum is in one and the fly is in the other. Well, Reba McIntyre is in one and there's a mouse in the other one. 
Because she looks like a mouse lady. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Google Reba McIntyre image it, listeners, and tell me I'm wrong. If uh, And if you want to go one step further, you should... <laughs> if you want to go one step further, you should um, Google the song from Lonely Island, Reba McIntyre, because... <laughs> It will change your entire outlook on Reba McIntyre. Uh, if you know who Reba McIntyre is, she is a country artist and she's she got red hair. A, she also had a television show. She did called Reba, right? Yeah. yeah. And she's, I'm Reba. She's a mouse lady. <laughs> but she's a southern yeah. mouse lady. She's like, y'all got any cheese? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> so next to pass was Dimitar Voev. Voev was the founder of the Bulgarian, Bulgarian new wave band, New Generation. During Voev's life, and especially after his death from cancer on September 5th, 1992, New Generation achieved cult status. New Generation later appeared in Sofia on 21, or excuse me, on June 21st, 2006, in front of 40,000 people, opening for Depeche Mode. Dimitar Voev's vocal duties were taken by younger brother, Simeon Voev. Now, this next one, I've actually heard about repeatedly. And it is a fucked I remember up it too. story. All right. So I was I was debating whether I should put any of the details in. Just kind of fucked up, but I, I feel like it's something that should be talked. This about. one definitely needs to be talked about. So Mia Zapata was the lead singer. Plus of the, it's a, a, almost a hometown. Yeah, it's it's definitely it's close. So Mia Zapata was the lead singer of the Seattle punk band The Gits. The band was actually formed just outside of Dayton, Ohio. So you know, there's that home state connection there. Her death is an interesting and sad case. On the night of July 7th, 1993, Mia Zapata was brutally raped and murdered while walking home from a bar, the Comet. The Seattle Police Department initially focused their investigation on Zapata's circle of friends, believing that her murderer must have been someone she knew. Using funds generated by the Seattle music community uh, from benefit shows and CDs and whatnot, as well as their own money, the remaining band members hired private investigator Lee Heron to supplement the police department's investigation. For over three years, Heron and the Seattle Police Department investigated the crime with few or no breaks in the case. In 1996, the investigation first gained national attention in an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, which, by the way, have you guys watched the new Unsolved Mysteries yet? I haven't. It's actually pretty fucking awesome. I've Who's the host? Uh, it, it, from what I've watched, there is no host. It's like very documentary style. Oh, Robert Stack's not around anymore? No, Robert Stack is not around. Uh, I don't know. Is he still alive? Pretty sure. Okay. Well, <laughs> we need like a creepy dude in a trench blood. coat. I mean, that's the only way it works. I agree. <laughs> Robert Stack. Still best. Bro- what was uh, he was in? Uh, Basket- oh, basketball. Basketball. Yes. Yes. That's that's what I was looking <laughs> An for. Yes. They still have no fucking idea where he is. And he was also an airplane, wasn't he? Yeah. 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 He was like. Uh, <laughs> he was the pilot that he was, no he was in the uh he was one of the guys in the fucking uh was he the pilot he was one of the pilots walking through the the, the airport and he's the one that beat them all up he beat all every, the hyra yeah, krishnas yeah. and shit because yeah. they're all like giving him pamphlets and he just starts karate chopping people it's like he's in the fucking control room just like smoking cigarettes <laughs> i'm like we gotta do that's <laughs> uh, so awesome uh so anyway it however did not open up any new leads while being aired on unsolved mysteries the case was later highlighted highlighted on several other TV shows, including A&E's American Justice, Cold Case Files, City Confidential, CBS's 48 Hours, Fox's America's Most Wanted, and True TV's Forensic Files. So this this was a this really big, a big, thing. big story, big story about somebody that because they didn't have any leads, that was the biggest part of it. And they just didn't know who did this. So nine years passed with few new leads in the case until a random DNA check conducted by the Seattle's, uh, Seattle PD's cold case unit and the Washington State Crime Lab led to the arrest of Jesus Mesquia. Mesquia? 
Mesqua? Mesga. I would have said Mesquia. Mesquia, okay. Who briefly lived in Seattle during the time of Zapata's murder and was linked to the crime in 2003 when a DNA profile was extracted from a saliva sample left on Zapata's body. Mesquia had bitten her breast. That's fucked up. Anyway. Yeah. The saliva sample had been kept in cold storage until the STR technology was developed for full extraction. An original entry in 2001 failed to generate a positive result, but Mesquia's DNA entered the National Data Bank after he was arrested for burglary in Florida in 2002. Dumbass. On March 25th, 2004, a jury convicted uh, Mesquia of Zapata's murder, and he was later sentenced to 36 years in prison, the maximum allowed in the case under Washington state law. Wow! We'll be right back after this message. Every morning. There's now we would return of unmarked to your regularly scheduled program. You can trace it. But was the blood on there? No. It's guys. What? Oh, hey, sorry. Damn it. Man. God, I gotta watch so for that. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure. I'll make sure. I yeah, flag us down yeah, next time. Would you? Heads sorry. up, Moody. So, I'm sorry. God. All right. So April fifth. 1994. This is probably the one that most of you are going to recognize the most, if not one of the top two or three in this oh, entire list. So probably, everybody yeah. remembers. Most, well, of I feel like most generation. of the people listening, if they're part of our generation, this is going to be the one. Right. This if, is if they don't, if it's not the one on top of their list, it's it's right fucking there. Right. So again, April 5th, 1994, a very rough fucking day for many a teenager. If you are not familiar with that date, is the it is the day that Kurt Cobain committed suicide, supposedly. But that's uh, but that's for another episode. In fact, that's for the after the episode Ooh, episode. I've lots of information on that, by the way. All I have to say is, Courtney, you bitch. All I'm putting out there. Anyway, you got to <laughs> listen to the Patreon episode where we are going to dive way further that. into that. <laughs> That's see you next Tuesday. So Kurt Donald, <laughs> Kurt Donald Cobain was an American singer, songwriter, and musician, best known as the guitarist, primary songwriter, and frontman of the rock band Nirvana, the hair metal killer himself. That's right. If you don't know who Nirvana is, we'll assume you're either too young or you just hate music. He was born in Aberdeen, Washington, and uh, Cobain's family had a musical background. His maternal uncle Chuck Fradenberg played in a band called the Beachcombers. His aunt, Mary Earl, played guitar and performed in bands throughout Grays Harbor County. And his great uncle, Delbert, amazing name, by the way, <laughs> had a career as an Irish tenor. I, make- think, Delbert, I think Delbert knows uh, Isaiah. Yeah, that Delbert is a friend of mine. <laughs> I tell you what, he could croon like nobody. <laughs> we come out there to the back 40 lot, and I'm like, Delbert, them cows ain't coming in. We need to get them in. He just starts singing, and boy, I, I tell you, we got, well. Didn't he help you with your carburetor on your tractor? Oh yeah, you should see him, man. He knew how to tune it, right? He tuned it like a you like you think he had a tuna fork, you know what I mean? But he just <laughs> he seems like a carburetor kind of guy. He would he knocked so it he could, out. He could the box. sing and do carburetors. You, Delbert was a myth, a man, and legend. <laughs> I tell you, especially around my parts. If y'all don't know him, you better do some googling on that. All right, thanks, Isaiah. See you later. I'll, I'll see you guys later. <laughs> so. He actually made an appearance <laughs> in the 1930 film King of Jazz. His talent as an artist was evident from an early age as he would draw his favorite characters from films and cartoons, such as the creature from the Black Lagoon and Donald Duck in his bedroom. This enthusiasm was encouraged by his grandmother, Iris Cobain, who was a professional artist. 
Cobain, Cobain began uh, developing an interest in music at a young age. According to his Aunt Mary, he began singing at the age of two. At age four, he started playing the piano and singing, writing a song about a trip to a local park. Oh, how cute. He listened to artists like the Ramones and ELO. Fucking Woo! love ELO. <laughs> and from a young age would sing songs <laughs> like Arlo. That's such a white claw girl. Woo. <laughs> Yellow mango white claw. Woo. <laughs> Drunk AF. Uh, he would sing songs like Arlo Guthrie's motorcycle song, The Beatles' Hey Jude. Terry Jacks, Seasons in the Sun, and the theme song to the television show, The Band, The Monkeys. I've actually hey, heard. Hey, we're the Monkeys. I've actually Doesn't heard those recordings. Around. They're actually not bad for a kid. Uh-uh. Yeah. I've, I've watched like eight documentaries on him because I used to be a big Nirvana oh, fan. Oh, really? That's yeah. pretty awesome. I have to check that out. I didn't know that you actually yeah, had she, like the Yeah, the aunt you're talking about, Mary, I think her name Mary, is. Mary, yeah. She plays the uh, cassette tape. She still has them. She plays them in the documentary, and you can actually hear him as a young kid no singing. And playing. Yeah, it's pretty good. Really? Pretty cool. Was he like, no, it was nothing like Puddle of Mud. <laughs> so his parents divorced Thank when he was God. yeah right. His uh, parents divorced when he was just nine years old, and uh, he said that it had a profound impact on him. His mother said he became defiant and withdrawn. In a 1993 interview, he would say, "quote rem- I remember feeling ashamed for some reason. I was ashamed of my parents. I couldn't face some of my friends at school anymore because I desperately wanted to have the classic, you know, typical family: mother, father." I wanted that security, so I resented my parents for quite a few years because of that, end quote. Cobain often drew um, during school classes. He would draw objects, including those associated with the human anatomy. <laughs> he drew dicks. Let's be honest, Fetuses. Folks. Dicks. Fetuses. It's fetuses. Yeah. Ooh, really? That's like, if you've ever seen the cover of In Utero, in utero it's yeah. all like fetuses and babies and shit and like intestines. Yeah. So you don't That's think he drew dicks? He, no, I've, I've seen the pictures. That's all he drew was like babies and like... I can't have anything. I just I can just imagine Kirk Cobain drawing dicks. Balsack. Like what was Cock that movie? Two. Super bad, where he got in yeah. trouble for just all he did. Yeah, on his lunchbox. There I am. I had a whole lunchbox full of dicks. <laughs> Seth, we need to talk. <laughs> ah, that's so awesome. Um, anyway, when given a caricature assignment for an art course, Cobain drew Michael Jackson, but was told by the teachers that the image was inappropriate for a school yeah, hallway. Did they show that? No, I, I want to know what the that. fuck that picture I was. I can imagine. Yeah, it's why probably, would it be inappropriate? It's be pretty ridiculous. Yeah, that's messed up. He then drew an image of then-President Ronald Reagan that was seen as, quote, unflattering. Again? Yeah. What the fuck was he drawing? <laughs> Dicks, I'm telling you. It's just a, just Ronald Reagan with a big just dick as a nose. I mean, that, I could see imagine? that if it was Michael Jackson. Oh, well, okay. Well, <laughs> oof. Oh, here it is if you want to see it. Is there a picture? Oh, is it really? Yeah, it's pretty funny. Let me see. Hold on one second. Show it to the, the camera real quick. <laughs> he's, he's grabbing his crotch. Oh, that's why, because it's Michael Jackson with a bigger head. It's actually pretty good, yeah, though. And he's grabbing his crotch, and he's got like his, he's gyrating, like he's gyrating his head. I'm going to stroke out doing that. Sorry, sorry. Here it is. Is this the Ronald Reagan one? It's because he's got bubbles by the hand. He's actually a pretty good artist. He's a pretty good artist. You guys got to look up these uh, because Jeff obviously isn't throwing it up there. Sorry, guys. Anyway, so I, I can't I can't move him in my computer that way. <laughs> as you dropped it earlier, yeah. <laughs> as attested to uh, by several of Cobain's classmates and family members, the first concert he intended was Sammy Hagar and Quarter Flash <laughs> at the Seattle Center. I can't drive fifty five. 
The Red Rocket, Sammy Hagar. <laughs> Cabo Wabo. God. <laughs> Derail. We'd still need that button. Woo! I promise out there we will get that button, guys. <laughs> and that one. Right I want there. that song clip right there. Let me get a clean one. Ready? Shh. Shh. Woo! Perfect. <laughs> Uh, it was held at the uh, Seattle Center Coliseum in 1983. Cobain, however, claimed that his first concert he attended was the Melvins, and he wrote prolifically in I his journals. Fucking love the Melvins of the experience. The yeah, the Melvins are great. As a teenager You're living a Stoner in Stoner Rock fan, oh yeah. Uh, As a teenager living in Montesano, Washington, Cobain eventually found escape through the thriving Pacific Northwest punk scene, going to punk rock shows in Seattle. In late 1986, Cobain moved into an apartment paying his rent by working at the Poly uh, Polynesian Resort, a Polynesian coastal resort approximately 20 miles north of Aberdeen. You, are you okay? I'm fine. <laughs> so, like you're dying over there. During this period, he was traveling uh, frequently to Olympia, Washington. <laughs> Jesus Christ. To go to rock concerts. During his visits to Olympia, Cobain formed a relationship with Tracy Marinder. The couple had a close relationship, but one that was often strained with financial difficulties in Cobain's absence when touring. Mariner supported the couple by working at the cafeteria of the Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. So she is, to this day, like, still... You know those people, like, when one thing happens to them? Just hold on to the it. story for the life. So they interviewed her, and this is, like, two years ago. And she's still, like, dressing, like, goth. Like, she's got to be, I don't know, late 50s, almost 60s. Still yeah, goth. Yeah. Like, still goth. And, like, the interviewer, she's like, This is the couch that me and Kurt sat on. On Saturday nights, this is the refrigerator that Kurt stored his food in, and it just goes on and on and on. Like she's just like Kurt. Kurt that's that's Kurt, all she's Kurt, got Kurt. to yeah. talk about. Yeah, it's sad. it's kind of sad in a way. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, it's sad. And eh, poor lady. But uh, the the best part about she that with her pissed that she didn't stick around long enough for that Nirvana. Moment. Right, right, right. That's why she's pissed. But while working at the uh, cafeteria, she was often stealing food for the two of them. So that's always a plus. That's, that's what you do when yep. you work in a restaurant. This is true. During his time with Marinder, uh, Cobain spent most of his time sleeping into the late evening, watching television and concentrating on art projects. Her insistence that he get a job caused arguments that influenced Cobain to write, quote, about a girl, the song about a girl. Word of the day, J-O-B. <laughs> Friday, anybody? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah okay. If I come home and you ain't got a job, you ain't got to worry about a dog. Or you ain't worried about catching no dog. You got to worry about a dog catching your ass. You know the pickled pig's feet, collard greens? <laughs> I like pickled pig's feet. Um, so About a Girl was featured on the Nirvana album Bleach Marinder is credited with having taken the cover photo for the album she did not become aware that Cobain wrote About a Girl about her until years after his death oh my god can you imagine this is the camera I took the cover photo with I've never changed the film <laughs> soon after his separation from Marinder Cobain began dating Toby Vale an influential punk zenister of the riot girl band Zenster Zenster Zinster. You know what Z you don't remember Zines? Okay, how do yeah. you spell it? Do, you, do you call it Seinster? It's Sinister. Yeah, but it's magazine. So it's a Zinster. I don't believe you. Don't you remember Zines from back in the day? Like people would put them out of their fucking garage and I know shit? what you're talking about. Yeah. Like, like, like the, the Cleveland little, like, Zine. Self published Zines. Yeah. Oh, okay. Music so do you don't she was that, a Zinster. Fuck, you were you did nothing for the local music community. Shit, I did bitch. everything for it. Fuck. I drank a lot of beer. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she was in the band Bikini Kill, who embraced the which DIY. Were, which were awesome, by the way. Yeah, uh, she embraced the DIY ethos. After meeting Vale, Cobain vomited 
as he was so completely overwhelmed with overwhelmed overwhelmed with anxiety caused by his infatuation with her. Can you imagine meeting somebody that you're so absolutely in, like enthralled with that you're like, oh. I have no doubt. <laughs> I get it. Hi, my name's. <laughs> that happens a lot when people meet me. Oh, they, they just puke on so you. Overwhelmed that's by just my... your face is what makes them puke. Aww. Okay, but see, that's not the point. The point oh, is, sorry. it happens. It, it does happen. You're right. That's my first when I first met you. I. <laughs> I puked all over my shit. <laughs> you puked all over your shit? I did. I shit and puked at the same time. You have no idea. That's how amazing it was. <laughs> so this event inspired the lyric, love you so much it makes me sick, which appears in the song Aneurysm. While Cobain regarded Vale as his female counterpart, his relationship with her waned. He desired the maternal comfort of a traditional relationship, which Vale regarded as sexist within a countercultural punk rock community. Yeah, that'd be hard. Try imagine dating a feminist when you're not like a punk rock feminist. Yeah, like the yeah. riot girl yeah. leader. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. Imagine dating that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Probably can, I, can, I get you, can I get your door for you? What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> I'm joking, you're too good to get my own door. What I can't do it myself? Huh? Is that the problem? Go sleep on the couch, piece of shit. What am I weak? <laughs> so Vale's lovers were described by her friend Alice Wheeler as quote fashion accessories Cobain and Vale spent most of their time together as a couple discussing pol- uh, political and philosophical issues in 1990 they collaborated sounds on a like musical a shitty relationship. that sounds horrible actually they collaborated on a musical project called bathtub is real in which they both sang and played guitar and drums they recorded their songs on a four track tape machine that belonged to Vale's father do you, do you think people know what tape is out there? Should we explain that to them? Uh, what a four-track tape machine is? What a tape, tape machine Just tape machine? Tape. A tape. Do you guys know what tape You guys will never understand having to take a pencil <laughs> and, <laughs> and spool it all and back And put together, it inside dude. one of the holes to try because your damn tape deck ate the motherfucker. And you're listening and all of a sudden you're <laughs> and you're like, fuck! And you gotta spend 20 minutes fucking rolling that and motherfucker then, back up. And then after you do... It's always in your favorite song, and then you get to that point in the song, and it's just like. Do you remember when Auto Flip came out? <laughs> it totally does. It's like. <laughs> what is it? Auto Flip? Yeah. Remember yeah, when Auto Flip came it out? Would, it would automatically play the other You'd be side. You'd like of the riding tape. in the car, and it'd be like, dude, side A's over. It's like, hold on. And it's it start playing, playing like, side B. How did it do that? You know what else was crazy? When they started doing the rewind, that would go from song to song. Yeah. How oh, I never had it. that. What, what kind of, what, how rich were you? you know, what the fuck shit? is we that? Hit, you hit fast forward and it would just yeah. go from one song to the next one instead of fast forward until you stopped. I never it. had that. Dude, Alpine that did that. Shit? I never had that shit. Dude, I, I didn't, that. I had Balpine is what I had. All right. I didn't have Alpine. I had Balpine. You know what I mean? Like just the knockoff of everything that's back not, in the day. That's not funny. It is funny. I mean, Your face is funny. Not to mollycoddle it, but the stuff that you <laughs> that had is just work. as good. It's just as it good. It does not work. It's just as good. I do, however. Fuck. My favorite thing, and I don't, you guys have iTunes now. You guys have uh, Spotify. You get all this stuff. Hold on, and, hold on. What? We all have that. Now. Well, no, I'm just saying, like the listeners out there right now, they don't have to struggle with sitting there next to a song that you're waiting to come up on the radio. <laughs> To hit record and play at the same time yeah. to get that song, and you always get the tail end of the DJ going. Now it's blah 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 blah. Yeah, right at the beginning the of it. I was yes. just gonna say, how many of your hot mixes did you pop in? It's like, 
you want a full it's like exactly you're kind of like Ugh. that's what i'm saying i actually still have some of those tapes floating around yeah absolutely I'm sure there's plenty of people listening to this that still remember that shit and if you do remember that shit it sucked and we're sorry that you were that old i made you a mixtape <laughs> dude mixtapes were the shit back that's, then that's it see and that's when i took effort dude like that's how was, if you made a girl a mixtape fuck yeah she knew you liked her because you had to fucking work for that shit i have a golden idea now it's just like Uh-oh. i'll share you my spotify play do you guys want to be millionaires uh yeah first of similar all, to that first of all i am oh, but, similar okay but i do similar to that yeah what do you got you have a platform that sells mixtapes where you buy songs and it essentially makes a playlist, but it's already purchased and you send it to the person you want and they have them all purchased. Keep them forever. Is, can't you do that on half of these? Aren't fucking, those just playlists? You can do that on Spotify. Well, playlist. you share a playlist, but you got to have ads and shit. I'm talking about actually purchasing like a whole You could a do to B. that now. If you purchase songs, you could just put them on a fucking playlist. And, uh, and on, a, on a side note... <laughs> <laughs> on a side note, next time you have a million a million, don't fucking million, say you don't tell them on a fucking podcast. They're gonna fucking take it from us. I'm selling it. This is like Shark Tank. <laughs> so in Everett True, so there's th- some guy sitting in his basement actually doing it now. Right, he just heard you say he's it. buying the domain <laughs> mixtape.com. <Right. com. laughs> in Everett True's 2009 book Nirvana, the biography, Vale is quoted as saying. Quote, Kurt would play the songs he was writing. I would play the songs I was writing and we'd record them on my dad's four track. Sometimes I'd sing on the songs he was writing and play drums on them. He was really into the fact that I was creative and into music. I don't think he'd ever played uh, music with a girl before. He was super inspiring and fun to play with. Wow. Isn't that nice? Oh, and then she immediately slapped him in the face and told him to go make her a sandwich. <laughs> yeah. Go make wow. me a sandwich, motherfucker. I think I love you. <laughs> Is that because I'm a girl? Am I supposed to love you back? Wow. You, are you I, okay? I, just, I imagine that's she what it seems, would be like. She seems right? like one of those, you don't love me, you love the idea. That's what I'm saying. Right, 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 right. Yeah. right. You love the idea of being with me. Exactly. Which is fine if you're into that shit. Anyway, yeah. Shut up. <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, you not. can send all hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> so Slim Moon... Describe their sound as, quote, like the minimal quiet pop songs that Olympia is known for. Both of them saying it was really good. Cobain's relationship with Vale inspired the lyrics uh, of many of the songs on Nevermind. Once, while he was discussing anarchism and punk rock with friend Kathleen Hanna, another member of Bikini Kill, Hanna. That's Ed Bikini Rock's Kill. Uh, Ed Rock from Beastie Boys. That's his wife. Is really? it really? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yep. Um, Hanna spray painted Kurt Smells Like Teen Spirit on Cobain's apartment wall. Teen Spirit was the name of a deodorant veil war. Cobain, unaware of the deodorant's existence, interpreted the slogan as having a revolutionary meaning and inspired the title of the Nirvana song, Smells Like Teen Spirit. That's pretty freaking cool. I still like ding, 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 ding. I'd like Weird Al's version better. Fucking right. (laughs) (laughs) So during high school, Cobain rarely found anyone with whom he could play music. While hanging out at the Melvin's practice space, he met Chris uh, Nova Selleck. Like, how awesome is that, too? To hang out at the Melvin like, spot. What are you doing? I was like, ah, I was chilling at the Melvin's yeah, just, spot. Yeah, but back then it was probably like, yeah, you know, it's the Melvin's. Now it's like, it's the fucking Melvin's. That's yeah, true. You know? Um, so anyway, he met Chris Nova Selleck there, a fellow devotee of punk rock. Nova Selleck's mother owned a hair salon, and the pair occasionally practiced in the upstairs room of the salon. A few years later, Cobain tried to convince Nova Selleck to form a band with him by lending him a copy of a home demo recorded by Cobain's earlier band, Fecal Matter. <laughs> <laughs> that's it's that's not a joke. That's great. <laughs> that's the name of the band. 
All right, so let's talk about Nirvana. After months of asking, Novoselic finally agreed to join Cobain, forming the beginnings of Nirvana. Religion appeared to uh, remain a significant muse to Cobain during this time, as he often used Christian-related imagery in his work and developed a budding interest in Jainism and Buddhist philosophy. No idea what that is. I don't either, but I think I pronounced it correctly. Sure. We'll run with it. Yeah. The band name Nirvana was taken from the Buddhist concept, which Cobain described as, quote, freedom from pain, suffering, and the external world, a concept that he aligned with the punk rock ethos and ideology. Cobain was disenchanted after early touring due to the band's inability to draw substantial crowds and the difficulty of sustaining themselves. During their first few years playing together, Novoselic and Cobain were host to a rotating list of drummers. Eventually, the band settled on Chad Channing, with whom Nirvana recorded the album sounds, Bleach. It sounds like a bad sitcom. <laughs> yeah. Hi, I'm Chad Channing. Welcome to Channel 5 News. Yeah. You like drums? <laughs> we're out on the streets right now. Or he it's talks like, in third person. Chad like, Channing doesn't like that. <laughs> it's like a character like like from like Family Ties or something. <laughs> Chad Channing. Chad Channing. Yeah, but he's the bad guy. He has to be the bad guy. Yeah. Chad, uh, come on, Chad. I, yeah. dude, dude, leave me alone, Chad. Well, so that album with uh, he, Chad Channing, um, they recorded um, the album Bleach, released on Sub Pop Records in 1989. Sub Pop Records was also who... Um, Sonic Youth, uh, Sonic Youth, and Soundgarden, Soundgarden. were all on that, right? A lot of those, yeah. Sub Pop was like the biggest <laughs> yeah, Seattle like grunge, scene Seattle yeah. label yeah. there was, yeah. So Cobain, however, became dissatisfied with Channing's style and subsequently fired him, which made the band in need of a new drummer. They eventually hired one Dave Grohl, who helped the band who? record their 1991 major label debut. Debut, never mind. Now Dave Grohl, who? Yeah, who? I'm not sure if I know that name. I've never heard of that guy. Jeff, do you happen to know the name? No. Doesn't ring a bell. Yeah. Out of all these things, Dave Grohl. Hmm. Anyway, with Nevermind's lead single, Smells Like oh, Teen Spirit. Wait, you know what? What? He went on to form that band. Food Fighter. No, what did Christopher Walken call it? Oh, Foo Fighters. The Foo Fighters. <laughs> <laughs> so Nirvana quickly entered the mainstream, popularizing a subgenre of alternative rock called grunge. Since their debut, Nirvana has sold over 25 million albums in the United States alone and over 80 million worldwide. The success of Nevermind provided numerous Seattle bands such as Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden access to wider audiences. As a result, alter alternative rock became a dominant genre on radio and music television in the U.S. during the early to mid-90s. Music in the 90s was so goddamn good. It's so much better than it is now, so man. So good. Yeah, and listen, if you're, original. Yeah, if you're out there making music, do better. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's all I can say. Um, so Nirvana, Nirvana was considered the flagship band of Generation X, and Cobain yep. found himself reluctantly anointed by the media as the generation's spokesman, though Cobain resented this as he believed his message and artistic vision had been misinterpreted by the public. Cobain struggled to reconcile the massive success of Nirvana with his underground roots and vision. He also felt persecuted by the media, comparing himself to Francis Farmer. He began to harbor resentment against people who claimed to be fans of the band, yet refused to acknowledge or misinterpreted the band's social and political views. So basically, people are listening to it, but they're not getting it. He used to get really upset like in early interviews when uh, MTV would interview him, and he would say that 
it's weird because the shows they were playing when they got popular, all the jocks and like people that like used to beat him up and pick on him as a kid are now like in the front out rocking yeah, out and right, buying the right albums. Front, yeah. He said he just didn't know how to handle that. Yeah. And they're just again, they're they're not I getting can, his actual the message he's it, trying man. to relay. You I know? can definitely see that though. Yeah, it's got to be a weird thing. Yeah. So a vocal opponent of sexism, racism, racism, and homophobia, he was publicly proud that Nirvana had played at a gay rights benefit, supporting uh, No on Nine in uh, Oregon in nineteen ninety two. The show was held in opposition to Ballot Measure 9, a ballot measure that, if passed, would have directed schools to teach that homosexuality was, quote, abnormal, wrong, unnatural, and perverse. Okay, stop really quick to think about that. It's fucked up. Not only that, that was in fucking 1992. So, less than 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. No, that's almost 30 years ago. Yeah. Oh shit! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> but wow. but no, what that no, does though, still, it puts it into context still. that that wasn't long ago, that we were alive then, and we were yeah. we were dealing with these. Yeah. And I that's it's fucked up. Twelve they, years old. They were even teaching and there that was people trying to get that shit put into schools. Yeah, yeah. that's so fucked. So that's Cobain, fucking, it's insane. It's, it, it just shows the stupidity of people too. Cobain was a vocal supporter of the pro-choice movement, and Nirvana was involved in L7's Rock for Choice campaign. Another great band. L7 yeah. was great. Andre. <laughs> he received death threats from a small number of anti-abortion activists for participating in the pro-choice campaign, with one activist threatening to shoot Cobain as soon as he stepped on stage. Following a tour stop at Terminal Eins in Munich, Eins, Frein, Trein, und Wein. Jesus Christ. No, because Eins, that's... That's one. I, that's one, yeah. Eins, yeah. That's a dog here. food, isn't Boom, it? Yeah. That's, that's Eins. Same thing. Eins, not Eins. <laughs> this was on March 1st, 1994. Cobain was diagnosed with bronchitis and severe laryngitis. He flew to Rome the next day for medical treatment and was joined there by his wife, Courtney Love. Bitch! <coughs> <coughs> oh, God. <coughs> on March 3rd, 1994. The next morning, Love awoke to find that Cobain had overdosed on a combination of champagne and uh, Ropinol? Rohypnol. Rohypnol. Which is fucking roofies, isn't that? Oh. Isn't that the day rape drug? Rohypnol? No. That's. Uh, I'm almost positive. Rufinol. 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 What is fucking Rohypnol? It, I thought that I was the. Know. I thought that was it. Check the Google out. I'm going to Google it right now. <laughs> so Cobain was immediately rushed to the hospital, idiots. and I can remember this mm -hmm. whole part with the whole. I, I, it, I like this really. Like, right before unplugged. Right. Um, so Cobain was immediately rushed to the hospital and was unconscious for the rest of the day. After five days in the hospital, Cobain was released and returned to Seattle. Love later stated that the incident was Cobain's first suicide attempt. On March 18th, 1994, Love phoned the Seattle police informing them that Cobain ah, was suicidal. The, it is a date rape drug. I was right. Oh, it is a date rape drug or the date rape drug? It's also used as a, as a date rape drug. That's fucked up. Uh, also, in case you're wondering, the street names are Circles, Forget Me Pill, La Rocha, Lunch Money Drug, Mexican Valium, Pingus, R2, Roach 2, Roofies, Rofies, and Wolfies. Hey, man, you got the lunchbox? <laughs> Why so, would you roofie yourself? So if anybody tells you that they've got some Mexican Valium for you, <laughs> stay away. You got that R2-D2, man? <laughs> so she called... And uh, basically told the Seattle police that he was uh, suicidal and locked himself in a room with a gun. Police arrived and confiscated several guns and a bottle of pills from Cobain, who insisted that he was not suicidal and had locked himself in the room to get the fuck away from Courtney fucking Love. Who wouldn't do that? Correct. Love arranged an intervention regarding Cobain's drug use on March 25th, 1994. 
the ten people. Possibly pe- the only good thing she's ever done. Right. Well, if that's what that was. If it, yeah. Yeah. The ten people involved, including musician friends, record company executives, and one of Cobain's closest friends, Dylan Carlson. The intervention was initially unsuccessful, with an angry Cobain insulting and heaping scorn on its participants and eventually locking himself in the upstairs bedroom. However, by the end of the day, Cobain had agreed to undergo a detox program. Cobain arrived at the Exodus Recovery Center in Los Angeles on March 30, 1994. Staff at the facility were unaware of Cobain's history of depression and prior attempts at suicide. When visited by friends, there was no indication to them that Cobain was in any negative or suicidal state of mind. He spent the day talking to counselors about his drug abuse and personal problems, happily playing with his daughter, uh, Frances. These interactions were the last time Cobain saw his daughter. That's fucking sad. The following night, Cobain walked outside to have a cigarette and climbed over a six-foot-high fence to leave the facility. He said, fuck this shit, I'm out. Which he actually joked earlier in the day (laughs) would be a stupid (laughs) feat to try to attempt. (laughs) And he actually did it. He took a taxi to Los Angeles Airport and flew back to Seattle. On the flight, he sat near to Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses. Despite Cobain's own personal uh, animosity towards Guns N' Roses, and specifically Axl Rose. Yeah, there was a lot of fights. With yeah, that a bunch too. of like shit going lot. on with that, yeah. Well, yeah. Cobain seemed happy to see McKagan. McKagan later stated he knew from, quote, all of my instincts that something was wrong. Most of his uh, close friends and family were unaware of his whereabouts. On April 2nd and 3rd, Cobain was spotted in numerous locations around Seattle and April 3rd. Love contacted... Uh, on, on April 3rd, I'm sorry, Love contacted private investigator Tom Grant and hired him to find Cobain. Cobain was not seen the next day. On April 7th, amid rumors of Nirvana breaking up, the band pulled out of the 1994 Lollapalooza Music Festival. The Kirk, next, what's that? Go ahead. That, that next line is not in the right spot, so just skip it. Okay. <laughs> That's hilarious. It doesn't make any sense. I was reading it like, what? <laughs> on April 8th, Cobain's body was discovered at his Lake Washington Boulevard home by electrician Gary Smith who had arrived to install a security system. Apart from a minor amount of blood coming out of Cobain's ear, the electricians reported seeing no visible signs of trauma and initially believed that Cobain was asleep until he saw the shotgun pointing at his chin. A suicide note was found addressed to Cobain's childhood imaginary friend, Boda. Bada. Bada? Yep. Bada? Is that what it is? There's tapes of that, too. It's pretty creepy. That stated that Cobain had not, quote, felt the excitement of listening to as well as creating music along with really writing for far too many years. Now, sorry, far too many years now, end quote. A high uh, concentration of heroin and traces of diazepam were also found on his body. Cobain's body had been lying there for days. The coroner's report estimated Cobain to have died on April 5th, 1994, at, of course, the age of 27. A public vigil was held for Cobain on April 10th, 1994, at a park at Seattle Center, drawing approximately 7,000 mourners. Pre-recorded messages by Nova Selleck and Love were played at the memorial. Love read portions of the suicide note to the crowd, crying and chastising Cobain. Fucking bitch. Near the end of the vigil, Love distributed some of Cobain's clothing to those who still remained. Grohl said that the news of Cobain's death was, quote, probably the worst thing that has happened to me in my life. I remember the day after that, I woke up and I was heartbroken that he was gone. I just then he f- found the shoebox of songs, which would become the Foo Fighters greatest. Yeah. <laughs> we always uh, talk about that. Yeah. We always talk about talk that. Talk about selling your soul. Yeah. What's yeah. this shoebox? Yeah. What are these tapes? <laughs> <laughs> I just felt like, okay, so I get to wake up today and have another day and he doesn't. Girl believed that he knew Cobain would die at an early age, saying that, quote, sometimes you just can't ha- save someone from themselves. And, quote, in some ways, you kind of prepare yourself emotionally for that to be a reality. 
Dave Reed, who for a short time was Cobain's foster father, said that he, quote, had the desperation, not the courage to be himself. Once you do that, you can't go wrong because you can't make any mistakes when people love you for being yourself. But for Kurt, it didn't matter that other people loved him. He simply didn't love himself enough. A final ceremony was arranged for Cobain by his mother on May 31st, 1999 and was attended by both Love and Tracy Miranda. If you guys remember, that was the first girlfriend, not the crazy uh, weird chick, the veil or whatever her name was. This is the soap that Kurt used to wash his body and we took a shower and I saved it in this glass case and it's next to the blanket that Kurt used to use when he was called. Jesus. As a Buddhist monk chanted, daughter Francis Bean scattered Cobain's ashes into McLean Creek in Olympia, the city where he had, quote, found his true artistic muse. A bench in Veretta Park through uh, tribute graffiti has become an improvised memorial to Cobain. The death of Kurt Cobain has since been a topic of public fascination and debate. Cobain's artistic endeavors and struggles with heroin addiction, illness, and depression, as well as the circumstances of his death, have become a frequent topic of conversation throughout the world. According to a spokesperson for the Seattle Police Department, the department receives at least one weekly request to reopen the investigation, resulting in the maintenance of the basic there, incident report on file. There is a shit ton. We'll go over on Patreon, but I, I know hundreds of them off ha- offhand. There's a shit ton of loopholes. Oh, yeah. In this oh, yeah. whole thing. Fuck like yeah, the whole man. story. Yeah. Check out, uh, if you ever get the time, if you really want to know what kind of artist he was, like other than the music, watch uh, a documentary on Netflix called Montage of Heck. And what it is, is his daughter, Francis, put it together. It's all his, like, written poems and, like, lyrics that didn't make songs and whatnot. And she reads them all, but it's, like, a cartoonist did, like, all these cartoons with it. It's really cool. It's a really cool thing to watch. Check that out. That sounds awesome. What's it called? Montage of Heck. All right. In March 2014, the Seattle police developed four rolls of film that had been left in an evidence vault. A reason was not provided for why uh, the rolls were not developed earlier. According to the Seattle police, the 35-millimeter film photograph showed the scene of Cobain's dead body more clearly than previous Polaroid images taken by the police. Detective Mike Szynski, I'm going to say that's right, a cold case investigator was instructed to look at the film because, quote, it is 20 years later and it's a high media case. Szynski stated that Cobain's death remains a suicide and that the images would not have been released publicly. The photos in question were later released one by one weeks before the 20th anniversary of Cobain's death. One photo shows Cobain's arm still wearing the hospital bracelet from the drug rehab facility he checked out of just a few days prior to returning to Seattle. Another photo shows Cobain's foot resting next to a bag of shotgun shells, one of which was used in his death. Wow! We'll be right back after this message. Every morning. But now we would return to your regularly scheduled program. I take this antibiotic. Dude, but did she put it in your ass? Dude! Yeah, but I was like, oh, hey, hey. Sorry, Moody. Okay, we'll we'll edit that out. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. You got to get better at that, man. We need like a light, like an on-air light. Can we get one of those? Yeah. You guys are... Maybe tasers. Tasers would be good. Something, Yeah. So shortly after Cobain died, Kristen Pfaff overdosed on heroin. Faf died about two months after Cobain on June 16th, 1994. There was a connection between the two people. Cobain was with Courtney Love when he died. Faf played bass in the band Hole, which was, if you all remember, Courtney Love's band. Which, uh, they did have some quality jams, I will admit. I liked some of their songs. Violet was a great song. Like some of those That's doll, like the only doll one. Doll Parts was good. 
I'm not a fan. Dude, I like some of their shit. That's some good songs. I did like that one. I did like that. They have some good songs, man. I like them. If you ever shopped at Hot Topic, that's all you heard. Yeah. Oh my God, great story. So my 12-year-old, about to be 13-year-old. That is a good story. Let's move on. Hey, go fuck yourself. So she is, we've talked about before, she's uh She's a little individual. She likes to do her own thing. Well, for the where first did time, she get that from? Yeah, I, I have no idea. But she uh, she wanted to go to Hot Topic first time ever. She's like, Dad, that store is still around. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, dude. She's God, like, I'm old. It's for, so not cool oh, yeah. anymore, though. <laughs> no, for her, it was. She's like, I really want to go. My friends tell me about it. And I see it online and everything else. And I want to go to Hot Topic. Now, to us, we grew up where Hot Topic was like, oh, man, it's kind of cool. And then it's like, man, this place is fucking horrible. Yeah. You know? And to her, she's seeing it in a totally new light. Yeah. So I took her there, got her a couple of like little outfits and stuff and got her like she's into like uh, um, Japanese animation and manga and stuff like that. So got her that. I've never seen a kid more happy to be anywhere <laughs> ever than to be in that store at that mo- <laughs> moment in time. And I'm just thinking to myself, wow, am I fucking old? Oh, yeah. Know, right? yeah. Like, how'd you, I am how'd you old. feel walking in there? Old. You'd be amazing if the cashier guy was still the one from back the then. Same like, guy. Hey, yo, freestyle. What you? <laughs> you want a studded belt? We got studded belts. Might well get one, bro. Now I walked in there like with my my paisley button up, and Dude, we still got some old junkos in the back, bro. Yeah, with my freaking dockers on and my, you know what I mean? Woo! Like, yeah. yeah. Reflector shirts are my one. Get one, bro. <laughs> I will say, however, the guy behind the counter did still have the same pretentious fucking attitude from back in the day. Oh, 100%. She was like, wow, he's kind of rude. I'm like, no, honey, they're all like that. (laughs) She's like, this is how they're supposed to be. Yeah. Hey, man, did they have the, you got the slipknot shirt in large? (sighs) Can't believe people. If it's not out, it's not in Exactly. That's exactly (laughs) what it's like. Everything we have is on the shelf. (laughs) (laughs) So another strange one. Take everything. Take everything. Another strange one is up next here. It's Richie Edwards of the band The Manic Street Preachers. Uh, it's considered part of he is considered part of the 27 Club, but it may not be entirely true. You see, Edwards disappeared on February 1st, 1995, and he was 27 at that time. He was not declared legally dead, however, until November 23rd, 2008. And he would have been 40 at that time. This is a strange one. Edwards disappeared on February 1st, 1995, on the day when he and Bradfield were due to fly to the United States on a promotional tour of the Holy Bible. In the two weeks before his disappearance, Edwards withdrew $200 or 200 pounds a day from his bank account, which totaled uh, 2,800 pounds by the day of the scheduled flight. Some speculated that he needed the money for the U.S. trip, and it was also mentioned that he had ordered a new desk for his flat from a shop in Cardiff. However, there was no record of the desk having ever been paid for. That's the most British sentence ever. (laughs) That is pretty awesome. He ordered a new desk for his flat in Cardiff. Yes. Thank you. I should have said that in a totally English accent, but I didn't. Yeah. However, there's no record of the desk having been paid for, and this would have explained only half of the money withdrawn. According to Emma Forrest, as quoted in A Version of Reason, the night before he disappeared, Edwards gave a friend a book called uh, Novelle with Cocaine instructing her to read the introduction, which details the author staying in a mental asylum before vanishing. 
while staying at the Embassy Hotel in Bayswater Road, London, according to Rob Jovanovic. (laughs) Damn it! Jovanovic. That's what I said! Biography, Edwards removed some books and videos from his bag. Among them was a copy of the play Equus. Edwards wrapped them carefully in a box with a note that said, quote, I love you, then decorated the box like a birthday present and decorated the outside of it with collages and literary quotations. These included a picture of a, German, a Germanic-looking house and Bugs Bunny. What the fuck? <laughs> the package was addressed to, quote, Joe, Edwards' on-and-off girlfriend, whom he met some years prior, although they had split a few weeks prior. Edwards spoke about her in his last interview. The next morning, Edwards collected his uh, wallet, car keys, some Prozac, and his passport. Jesus. Well, uh, oh, he, he's getting on a plane, so he's taking his Prozac. Okay, that makes sense. I was like, oh, my God. He reportedly checked out of the hotel at 7 o'clock in the morning, leaving his toiletries, packed suitcase, and some of his Prozac. He then drove to his apartment in Cardiff, leaving behind his passport, his Prozac, and the toll booth receipt. In the two weeks that followed, Edwards was apparently spotted in the Newport Passport Office and at Newport Bus Station by a fan who was unaware that he was missing. The fan was reported to have discussed a mutual friend, Lori Fiddler, before Edwards departed. On February 7th, a taxi driver from Newport supposedly picked up Edwards from the King's Hotel and drove him around the valleys, including Edwards' hometown of Blackwood. The driver reported that the passenger had spoken in a Cockney accent, which occasionally slipped into a Welsh one. And, listen, by the way, over there, that shit is, like, it's very distinct. Oh, yeah. They know the difference between those. Us, we hear that, and one's Dude, just a little bit more ever, brash than the other. Ever heard, like, Cockney's rough, but have you ever heard anybody with, like, a thick Welsh accent talk? It is fucking unrecognizable as a language. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very, very hard. Very hard to understand. It's crazy. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, so anyway, but the pastor reportedly said that this is not the place and asked to be taken to Pontywood Railroad Station. It was later ascertained, according to uh, Jovanovich's account, that Pontypool did not have a telephone. The passenger got out of the Severn View service station near Aust South Gloucestershire and paid the 68 pound fare in, in cash. Okay, so did we get that? Do we follow that whole thing? Yeah, I'm good. Okay, so basically. They're trying to follow this dude's whereabouts, but they can't really prove. The what dude happened? was just doing a bunch of sketchy ass shit and then just fucking disappeared. And all of a sudden in 2008, they're like, yeah, he's gone. Well, there's more. Keep reading. Okay. Yeah. So that's where we're at right now. So on uh, February 14th, Edwards's Vauxhall Cavalier, um, which I would assume is his car, correct? Yes. It's okay. Received a parking ticket at the Severn Views service station. And on February 17th, the vehicle was reported as abandoned. Police discovered that... <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. The police discovered the battery to be dead with evidence that the car had been lived in. The car also had photos he had taken of his family's, excuse me, his family days prior. Due to the service station's proximity to the Severn Bridge, a known suicide site, it was widely believed that Edwards had jumped from the bridge. Many people who knew Edwards, however, have said that he was never the type to contemplate suicide, and he himself was quoted in 1994 as saying, quote, in terms of the S word, that does not enter my mind, and it never has, um, and it never has done in terms of an attempt. Oh wait, and I, it never has done in terms of an attempt. Yeah, I don't, that's his quote. Oh, okay. Well, because I am stronger than that, I might be a weak person, but I can take pain. End quote. Since then, Edwards has reportedly been spotted in a market in Goa, India, 
and on the islands of, oh my God, Fuerteventura and Lanzarote. There have been other alleged sightings of Edwards, um, especially in the years immediately following his disappearance. However, none of these has proved conclusive and none have been confirmed by investigators. Like that is that's yeah. So, so this they, dude, they he's everywhere, him, but fucking nowhere. They consider him like he's one of those like they kind of consider him part of the club because he disappeared when he was 27. But they really don't know what happened to him, I guess. So he's just he's just all he over could the still place. still be fucking alive for all we know. But they, they have no proof they or disproof no, no, of anything. They, got, they have apparently have not. Unless something's uh, I mean, unless there's some something that I didn't see. Somebody out there might know this guy, you know, more about this guy than I do. I recognize the, I know the band. I don't know him and I don't know his story that well. So if you've got something better, you know, if someone knows anything that I didn't know that I missed, please, please reach out. Know. Yeah. Let us know. Cause, Cause that's, that's a great. Cra- yeah. It's crazy. It's a crazy ass story. So the next three deaths are all rappers that were murdered. A rapper named stretch stretch was a rapper and producer who at one point was part of Tupac's group thug life. Stretch was murdered as he was chased in his car and shot at by two or three people that began shooting at him. He crashed his car and was found dead inside due to four gunshot wounds to his back on November 30th, 1995. The next rapper was Fat Pat. On February 4th, 1998, he was shot to death outside of the apartment of a promoter who he was going to see to collect an appearance fee. His murder remains unsolved. And lastly, we have rapper Freaky Ta. Ta was a member of the Lost Boys. I love the Lost Boys. (laughs) Absolutely love the Lost Boys. Ta was uh, fatally shot by Kelvin Jones while he was going towards the exit of a Sheraton Hotel in Queens, New York. It was a case of mistaken identity. He was pronounced dead at the nearby Jamaica Hospital. The getaway driver, Raheem Fletcher, was sentenced to seven years in prison. Jones pleaded guilty to murder. Oof. Oof. Mistaken identity. Mistaken identity. Think about that That shit. That sucks. Like you're you're just walking along mind your own business and because someone thinks you look like someone else, they kill you. Yeah. Fuck. Think about how many times the mafia did that. Yeah. <laughs> hey Joey, is that him? I don't know. It looks like him. Yeah. Eh. No, there's any spaghetti. <laughs> yeah. Fucking whack him. <laughs> so Cammy was a Japanese musician, best known as a uh, as drummer for the visual Kai rock band Malice Miser. He died on June 21st, 1999 in his sleep of a so subarachnoid hemorrhage. What the fuck is that? No fucking idea. Jeff, subarachnoid hemorrhage. So that is basically, <laughs> do you want to know? I'll, I'll take a look. Really yes. Quick. What is that? Okay. So a spider bites you in your sleep. Jesus Christ. And what it happens is it actually, the fangs get into one of your veins, your main veins. <laughs> And the poison travels directly into your arteries and into your uh, cerebral cortex, and it causes a submersion of blood. Okay. It's actually a hemorrhage, you fucking dolt. It's a, it's do you a, want to do speech around? It's, it's a brain and hemorrhage. When it's a, we had... <laughs> a Ice cream blood. was good. <laughs> yeah, it sucks. Exactly you can't do it. it. It's, it's so hard. chip. It's usually yummy, yummy, yummy. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe tomorrow. Brain, but we could. If you want to ride a bike, I have training wheels. I have a helmet, too. <laughs> okay, hold on. What is it? <laughs> For real? It's an aneurysm. Okay, so it's we had an aneurysm. It, it causes... It's, uh, <laughs> it's caused by a bulging blood vessel that bursts in the brain. It may lead to death or, oh, or brain damage. Okay. God, it hurts. I hate when you do that. <laughs> I fucking hate it. It's very, All right. It's very rare, according to this. Fewer than 200,000 cases per year in the U.S. Damn. Try doing speed trauma with the cashier next time you check out the grocery store. Yeah. It's a good time. I'm going to get punched in my face. 
So um, Freaky Ta, or no, excuse me, Bakami um, uh, was actually the last one for the 90s. That rounds out the 90s. Oddly enough, since the year 2000, there have been 27 deaths in the 27 Club. At least that I found. There could be more. I don't know. And here we go. So Rodrigo Alejandro Bueno, also known by his stage name Rodrigo or his nickname El Potro, which means the Colt, yep. was an Argentine. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. Was an Argentine singer of uh, cuarteto music. Is that it? Quarteto? Quarteto? Quarteto music. He is widely regarded as the best, most famous, and most influential singer in the history of his genre. He died in a car accident on June 24, 2000, after he became angry at another driver for blocking him on the road and chased the other vehicle. He lost control of his vehicle and flipped the SUV he was driving. Murphy's Law. Yeah, he and another person or passenger were thrown from the car. Bueno died instantly, and the other passenger died about 45 minutes later. Road rage is a bitch, folks. Stop that shit. Yeah, I guess from what I was reading, he was trying to, like, he was chasing this dude down, and he tried to get around him, and he clipped the other car, and it made him lose control, and he's like, flipped the car a bunch of times and shit. So it's not worth it, man. Let him go. Apparently, that dude was super fucking famous, though. From, from well, what I was reading. Really? Yeah, like, this dude was, like, super famous. That's awesome. Sean Patrick it's McCabe. Really, it's not really awesome, but... Well, it's not awesome that he died, but it's awesome that he was famous. Oh, yeah. Well. Yeah, that's what I mean. Uh, <laughs> Sean Patrick McCabe, lead singer of Philadelphia hardcore punk band Ink and Dagger, was found dead in his hotel room due to asphyxiation on August 28th, 2000. So he murdered? Would that, would that be asphyxiation? No, I think was it, it was... Was it autoerotica? That's, yeah, what, I'm, that's, that's what, what I'm thinking, yeah. Uh, David Carradine? Because it didn't say anything about, like, And the guy from NXS. It, yeah, and they think Chris Cornell. Really? Oh, yeah. Chris Cornell was murdered. No. Well, save it for the Patreon. Patreon. Anyways, so, yeah, I think it, it didn't say anything about foul play or anything. I think that it was something like that. Okay. Maria Serrano Serranos, the next one to pass. She was a singer in the Eurodance bubblegum band Passion Fruit. Uh-huh. She died in a plane crash along with one of the other members of the band on November 24th, 2001. Some of you music fans may know the next guy on the list. On May 5th, uh, 2003, Jeremy Ward was found dead in his apartment for of an apparent heroin overdose. If you recognize the name but can't place it, Ward was the sound technician and vocal operator for the band The Mars Volta. He created many of the soundscapes on the album De Laust in the Comatorium. You remember that record? Oh, yeah. That's a uh, avant-garde to very, the extreme. Very. Yeah. That's hilarious. I think it's one of those. Uh, remember, um, uh, what was the movie? Uh, get him to the Greek. Get him to the Greek. Yeah, where he's like uh, Jonah Hill. Yeah. And he had it playing in the background. He's like, got his hands like, ah! <laughs> Yeah, that's that's Mars Volta, if you guys aren't familiar. If you ever watch TV in the 90s, you'll know this next guy. If you don't recognize the name, just Google him and you'll remember it. Trust me, if you see his face, you will know. It's Jonathan Brandis. Brandis was an actor who made appearances in many things throughout the 90s. He was in the movie It, the original. Yeah, he was in the He the was mini the series. stuttering guy. What's he was his the name? young, Bill. young, uh, yeah, Bill. the young yeah. one. Really? Yep. Yeah, he huh. played the kid. Yeah. Well, he was the lead in the uh, the soccer flick Ladybugs. Remember that one? Yep, yeah. I remember that one. Uh, that was with... Uh, um, it's fucking... I get no respect. Ronnie Dangerfield. Damn it. Yeah, he was like the coach and like he brought him in to play. Yeah. Yeah. yeah to, to act like a girl, yep. to dress up like a girl, yeah, which you could not get away with nowadays. <laughs> um, or could you? Uh, maybe. 
He starred alongside the legendary Chuck Norris in the film Sidekicks, which was a great movie, <laughs> as well as playing a teenage bastion in The NeverEnding Story 2 and many more. He had many television appearances as well as include as well in as well, including in shows such as Webster, Full House, Who's the Boss, Blossom, The Wonder Years, Saved by the Bell, The College Years, and was one of the lead actors in the series Sequest, DSV. On November 11th, 2003, he was found hanged in the hallway of his apartment. He was transported to the hospital where he died, unfortunately, the next day from his injuries. So 2005 saw the deaths of two more musicians, both due to overdose. First was Brian Otteson, guitarist of the band American Head Charge. That I sucks. Remember, I, remember I remember when that, that happened. Because I love those guys. Man. I did too. I loved, I still, I actually introduced that to, uh, to Riley. Hey, you guys remember nice. Riley? Yeah. Introdu- and he loves them. He Dude, absolutely loves them. Yeah, they're, they're great. great. I saw them a couple of times, man. Yeah, they're, they they're killer. killer. He overdosed and died on April 19th, 2005. Devor Bobic was a rapper and unfortunately overdosed on August 25th, 2005. 2006 saw one death. Valentin <laughs> as a, as Elizalde Valencia. Elizalde Valencia was a regional Mexican singer. He was known by the nickname El Galo de Oro, the Mm -hmm. Golden Rooster. That's a great nickname. That is a pretty good name. It sounds cool, way cooler in the uh, in Spanish though. El Galo de Oro. Some of his songs were (laughs) Narco Corridos, eulogizing Mexican drug lords like Vicente Carrillo Fuentes. He was murdered um, in an ambush, allegedly by members of the drug trafficking gang Los Zetas, which at the time served as the armed wing of the Gulf Cartel. Jesus. Yeah. You mean you're just mm. being that deep? Mm. Like, you're that, that's deep. Like, you're drug cartel coming after you. That's deep. Oh, shit. Another. Uh, How much for the lunchbox? <laughs> another one, uh, one death year came around in 2007. Damian Moore, so the Australian death corps band, died in a touring accident on uh, December 9th, 2007. Death Court, what band? What the fuck? Death Court. I don't know why that didn't get in there. <laughs> I must have accidentally. He's going to look that up real quick. I'll look it up. So the sorry. band was on the Christmas Carnage Tour supporting American band All Shall Paris. Par- Parish, excuse All me. All Shall Paris. Paris, which is, which is a different one. At around 7 a.m., the Red Shores Minibus. Oh, the Red Shore. That's the name of the band. The Red Shore. Oh, yeah, the yeah. Red Shore. Okay. Uh, minibus veered off the uh, Pacific Highway just north of Coffs Harbor. The accident <laughs> killed singer Damian Morris and driver merchandiser Andy Milner. There were six more deaths before the 2010s hits. Hit? Hit? 2010s hit. Orish Grenstead, founding member of R&B Group uh, 702, died of kidney failure on April 20, April 20th, 2008. Yep. Singer-songwriter <laughs> Elizabeth Amirian was murdered on February 12th, 2009. Reality TV personality Jade Goody died of cervical cancer on March twentieth or twenty second, two thousand nine. Artist Dash Snow died of drug overdose, uh, uh, a drug overdose on July thirteenth. No, that would be just Snow. Yeah, oh, that's a great song. By yeah, way. I, don't care, I, I don't care what anybody says. You know, it's it's a, a, a uh, oh, anyway, that happened on uh, July thirteenth, two thousand nine. Zambian pop singer Lily Timbo died of gastritis on September fourteenth, two thousand nine. Um, bassist Nate Nieck, who played in several punk bands, died on October 6th, 2009. Whoa! We'll be right back after this message. Every morning. So the same and now we will return was Lemon Lime Play. We ordered a regularly how scheduled you, program. How do you get that out of there? Yeah. I know. That's like, like, hey, the lemon worst. Lime Pledge. Lemon Lime Pledge. Like, like, that's a horrible scene. Yeah, oh, you don't want it. Sorry. Dude, oh, sorry. I was... I was trying to. You guys gotta watch for the signal. Sorry, dude. that's that, that. That was my bad that time. I should have been paying attention. Fuck. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> 
So let's move on to the 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 next decade here. So a keek spin, a keek, right? It looks, like, it looks like Etchik. Etchik Spin. A Keek, one a member of Malaysian pop band Spin, died in a traffic accident on April 17, 2010, to start the new decade of Club 27 deaths. Remember, we're talking about Club 27. These are all people who passed away at the age of 27. Hopefully, hopefully you guys are getting some good information about these people. Yeah, too. I mean, we, we wanted to put and as much information as possible in here getting, for you guys. Getting some new, maybe some new people to go back and check out. And, there's a lot of good stuff in here. And hopefully it's also making people realize how many people yeah, lead yeah, yeah. to the, 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 the whole mythos of this whole thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, why it is, why it has correct. the reputation that it has. Right. So the next casualty is one we're going to dive into uh, a little bit here uh, was another big name. Amy Jade Winehouse was an English singer and songwriter. She was known for her deep, expressive contralto vocals and her eclectic mix of musical genres, including soul, rhythm, and blues, and jazz. After toying around with her brother Alex's guitar, Winehouse bought her own when she was 14 and began writing music, uh, writing music a year later. Shortly afterwards, she began working for a living as an entertainment journalist for the World Entertainment News Network and also singing with local group The Bolsha Band. Yep. It- <laughs> In July of 2000, she became the featured female vocalist with the National Youth Jazz or Orchestra. <laughs> Jesus. Influenced by Sarah Vaughn and Dinah Washington, the latter of whom she was already listening to at home. Winehouse's best friend, soul singer Tyler James, sent her dem- demo tape to an A&R person. She signed to Simon Fuller's 19 Management in 2002 and was paid 250 pounds a week against for future earnings. That's right around $314 U.S. money give or take. While being developed by the management company, Winehouse was kept as a recording industry secret. Although she was a regular jazz standard singer at the Gold, uh, the Codbin Club, her future A&R representative at Island, Darkus, uh, Darcis or Darkus Beast, heard of her by accident when the manager of the Lewinson Brothers showed him some productions of his clients, which featured Winehouse as a key vocalist. Now think about that. You're so awesome that they're trying to make you a secret. They're trying to find the time to actually launch you. And so it, it, this is pretty awesome. Yeah, it's cool. Especially for the time. Because right. at that point, Dude, music the industry had died. Was in, it was in such a weird spot right, right yeah. then, too. But what's awesome is that when he asked who the singer was, the manager told him he was not allowed to say. So having decided that he wanted to sign her, it took several months of asking around for bees to eventually discover who the singer was. However, Winehouse had already recorded a number of songs and signed a publishing deal with EMI by this time. Incidentally, she formed a working relationship with producer Salam Remy through these record public uh, publishers, which I mean, th- that's so cool. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, hey, you walk up like you're on stage and you walk in. Hey, who is that man? Can't tell you. I can't tell you. What do you mean? You can't tell me. I honestly cannot tell you. Listen, give me five bucks. I'll tell you. Chuck Norris. <laughs> <laughs> so Winehouse's debut album, Frank, was released on October 20th, 2003. Produced mainly by Salam Remy, many songs were influenced by jazz, and apart from two covers, Winehouse co-wrote every song. The album received critical acclaim with compliments given to the, quote, cool critical gaze in its lyrics. Winehouse's voice was compared with those of Sarah Vaughn and Macy Gray, among others. Because she's got that raspy, soulful, you know what I mean? Like, she's she's actually pretty badass if you go back and listen to her. She had a great voice. Love her voice. The album entered the upper reaches of the UK album chart in 2004 when it was nominated for the Brit Awards in the categories of British Female Solo Artist and British Urban Act. It went on to achieve platinum sales. Later in 2004, she and Remy won the Ivor Ivor Novello Award for Best Contemporary Song for their first single together, Stronger Than Me. 
The album was also shortlisted for the 2004 Mercury Music, uh, Music Prize. In the same year, she performed at the Glastonbury Festival, Jazz World, the Five Festival, and the Montreal International Jazz Festival. After the release of the it album... It might just be V Festival. Maybe it's V Festival. It's five, five V, whatever. Roman numeral five, whatever. I'm just. I'm glad I caught that. Is all Happy I'm birthday, Polly. Happy <laughs> birthday, Polly. It's <laughs> a five festival. You know what I mean? After the release of the album, Winehouse commented that she was, quote, only 80% behind the album because Island Records had overruled her performances or her preferences for the songs and mixes to be included. The further singles from the album were Take the Box, In My Bed, You Sent Me Flying, and Pumps, Help Yourself. This all led up to the album Back to Black, the album that launched her into superstardom. Promotion of Back to Black soon began. Back to Black was released in the UK on October 30th, 2006, and it went to number one on the UK album charts for two weeks in January 2007. And in the US, it entered at number seven on the Billboard 2000, or 200, 2000, can you imagine? (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot of fucking songs, man. It's gonna be almost as long as this damn episode. Anyway, it was the best-selling album in the UK of 2007, selling 1.85 million copies over the course of the year. That's pretty fucking impressive, man. That's pretty good, man. The first, which, by the way, side note, did you guys hear that Trap's new record in the first week sold 500 copies? I, I saw that, and then he was trying to pretend like it never happened. Like, nope, that didn't happen. We sold, nah. 500 that dude, copies? That a, dude is a fucking mess. He's deranged. He's that dude it. is deranged. He's lost his shit, dude. Fucking! Have you seen oh, any yeah, of the shit? Yeah. He's All lost. That Twitter stuff, man. He is fucking gone. So the first single released from this album was the Ronson-produced Rehab. The song reached the top ten in the UK and the US. Time Magazine named Rehab the best song of 2007. The album's second single and lead single in the US, "You Know I'm No Good," was released in January 2007 with a remix featuring rap vocals by Ghostface Killer and Moody. Ghostface is from. Wait, like place or band? Band. Wu-Tang. Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing. I'm like, I don't know where the fuck he's from. I'm assuming (laughs) New York or something. I don't know. So it ultimately reached number 18 on the UK single charts. The title track, Back to Black, was released released in the UK in April 2007 (laughs) and peaked at number 25. Tears Dry on Their Own, Love is a Losing Game were also released as singles, but failed to achieve the same level of success. Winehouse promoted the release of Back to Black with headline performances in late 2006, including a Little Noise Sessions charity concert at the Union Chapel in Islington, London. On December 31st, 2006, Winehouse appeared on Jules Holland's annual Hootenanny. <laughs> <laughs> I just read that. I started laughing to myself when That's I read so that. so amazing. I want to have a Hootenanny. <laughs> and performed a cover of Marvin Gaye's I Heard It Through the Grapevine, along with Paul Weller and Holland's Rhythm and Blues Orchestra. I would love to hear that song. Yeah, I swear to God. She also performed Toots and the Maytals' Monkey Man. Toots. I said Toots. Toots. I said Toots. You said Toots. 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 Like Toots. 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 You're saying Toots like Tootsie Roll. Toots, right. How do you spell Tootsie Roll? Say Toots. It's Toots. It's Toots. Toots. At his request, actor Bruce Willis introduced Winehouse before her performance of Rehab at the 2007 MTV Movie Awards. On a side note, when I played in my wife's band, we covered that song. So, toots in the Mayhalls? Toots. 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 
<laughs> during the it's summer of two- is what I'm saying. <laughs> during the uh, summer of 2007, she performed at various festivals, including Glastonbury Festival and Lollapalooza in Chicago. The rest of her tour, however, did not go so well. In November 2007, the opening night of a 17-date tour was marred by booing and walkouts at the National Indoor Arena in Birmingham. A critic for the fucking Birmingham. What do you yeah, wait? Is that is she talking Alabama or is that in the UK? Birmingham. Uh, probably say UK, right? Birmingham. I would. Yeah, I don't, do they have an arena in Birmingham? Yeah, I, I don't know. A critic for the Birmingham Jeez. Mail said it was quote one of the saddest nights of my life. I saw a supremely talented artist reduced to tears, stumbling around the stage and unforgivably swearing at the audience. <laughs> she is like, "Fuck you! You want to walk out? Fucking walk out! <laughs> you don't like my fucking music?" Suck my dick. Play toots in the May Hall. <laughs> Toots. Woo! Shark's gonna play toots. Other concerts ended similarly with, for example, fans at her Hammersmith. So I'm going to assume oh, yeah, that so that's that was, London. Yeah, yeah, okay. Hammersmith Apollo performance in London saying that she, quote, looked highly intoxicated throughout until she announced on <laughs> November 27th, 2007, that her performances and public appearances she were canceled was, for the remainder of the year. Mess, yeah, yeah, it's on here. Fucking rehab. <laughs> Hit it. I, I've, Four, five, six. So um, that uh, that uh, documentary that they have on Netflix, I believe it's Netflix, um, uh, called Amy. I think that mentions that. In okay. Here. So anyway, I've actually I seen it. it. It's got a lot of really like, holy dude, shit. She was fucking, sad. She was it's, messed up. It was up, sad, man. dude, for sure. So anyway, they uh, basically cited that her doctor's advice to take a complete rest. So that's why she was canceling everything. A statement issued by concert promoter Live Nation blamed. Fuck Live Nation. Fuck Live Nation for sure. That the rigors involved in touring and the intense emotional strain that Amy has been under in recent weeks for the decision. On February 10th, 2008, Winehouse received five Grammy Awards winning in the following categories. This is crazy. Record of the Year, Song of the Year, Best Female Pop Vocal Performance for the Single Rehab, and Best Pop Vocal Album. It's nuts. It's a lot of fucking big hit and win. It's a lot, there, yes. Those, this, are like, those are major fucking Those categories. are major awards. It's not like, you know, best screenplay by a guy named Bill. <laughs> Do you think uh, Celine Dion was sitting like, oh, she's all right. Oh, <laughs> uh, she also earned a Grammy as best new artist, earning her an entry in the 2009 edition of the Guinness Book of World Records for most Grammy awards by a British female act. It's pretty badass. British. Additionally, Back to Black was nominated for Album of the Year. Ronson's work with her won the Grammy Award for Producer of the Year in the non-classical category. After the Grammys, the album sales increased, catapulting Back to Black to number two on the U.S. Billboard 200, after it initially peaked in the seventh position. A special deluxe edition of Back to Black topped the U.K. album charts on March 2, 2008. Meanwhile, the original edition of the album was ranked at number 30 in its 68th week on the chart. <laughs> so, 68 fucking weeks. So think about that, though, too. Like, you put out an album, and it charted pretty well, and it's still on the charts. That was it 68 68. Weeks? So that's uh, the, well over later, a year. Right? 68 weeks in, you're like, we're going to put out a special edition. Everybody buys the same goddamn album over again, and that one's at number three, while your other one is still at number fucking 30, yeah, whatever. Metallica did it michael jackson did it i mean that's <laughs> that's the level she got to that's fucking ridiculous though can yeah. we get a hee hee button for every time we mention michael jackson sure awesome so back to black was um <laughs> was the world's seventh biggest selling album of 2008 the album sales meant that the market performance of universal's music music yeah universal music's recorded music division did not drop to levels experienced by the overall music market in other words she held those motherfuckers afloat period a flute. A flute. <laughs> <laughs> I just choked on my own spit. 
<laughs> Would you say it was toots? <laughs> toots. Outside, toots, toots the flutes. Outside of performing, she had many other business ventures, including a fashion line, a line of gift cards, and wrapping paper with lyrics from her songs on them, and starting her own record label. She was also very big into charity, donating money and time to many charities. She was named the most charitable act by Pop World at one time. All of her success in charity could not help her personal life when it came to relationships, violence towards fans, and her own husband, and drinking and drug abuse. The drinking and partying are what ultimately led to her passing. So the whole vi- the whole violence thing I was reading is <clears throat> apparently at one point there was a fan and I can't remember what the fan said to her, but she got pissed off at like a female fan for something that she said to her. So she like jacked this girl in the face and then her husband at the time tried to stop her. So she turned around and need him in the fucking dick. And like, it was like this big scene. It's I'm like, Jesus, it's pretty dude, badass. Like, <laughs> Not fuck, gonna lie. <laughs> So Winehouse's bodyguard said that he had arrived at her residence three days before her death and felt she had been somewhat intoxicated. He observed moderate drinking over the next few days and said she had been, quote, laughing, listening to music and watching TV at 2 a.m. the day of her death. At 10 a.m. on July 23rd, 2011, he observed her lying on her bed and tried unsuccessfully to rouse her. This did not raise much suspicion because she usually slept late after a night out. According to the bodyguard, shortly after 3 p.m., he checked on her again and observed her lying in the same position as before, leading to a further check in which he concluded that she was not breathing and had no pulse. He said he called emergency services. At 3.54 p.m., two ambulances were called to Winehouse's home in Camden, London. Winehouse was pronounced dead at the scene at the age of 27. Shortly afterwards, the Metropolitan Police confirmed that she had died. A coroner's inquest reached a verdict of misadventure. The report released on October 26, 2011, explained that Winehouse's blood alcohol content was 416 milligrams per 100 milliliter. In other words, she had a 0.416 at the time of her death, more than five times the legal drink or drunk driving limit. Holy shit. That is a lot of fucking alcohol. That is a lot. I don't understand how you don't pass out before you get to that point. Oh, I guess you just fucking, you're, you're, you're binging. Just slamming shit you're, before you fucking you're pass binging. out, I guess, man. Yep. That's crazy. According to the coroner, the unintended consequences of such potentially fatal levels was her sudden death. Winehouse drank herself to death and became a member of the 27 Club. So sad. God. And, you know, and that's the thing that gets me about this, man. As we're going through this, you've got so many people with so much potential. So that much could fucking do talent so wasted, man. It's just gone. And it's gone. Like, like, I understand accidents. Like, that sucks. That sucks. It's very unfortunate. But when you get people that are like wrapped up in drugs and alcohol and suicidal thoughts, suicide, things like things that, like that man. it's just, man, it's so fucking dis- just disheartening. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. so it's just fucking sad. Um, one other death marked 2011, that of Richard Turner, trumpet player for the band Friendly Fires. Uh, he died, unfortunately, of a cardiac arrest while swimming on August 11th, 2011. OK, cardiac arrest. All right. He's swimming. He dies. It sucks. That's fucking horrible. And I feel bad for yeah. his family. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's not. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, so 2012 saw two deaths in the 27 Club. First was Nicole Bogner, singer for the Austrian metal band Visions of Atlantis. She passed away on July 6, 2012, of an undisclosed illness that she had reportedly been battling for some time. Next up was Sahar's Davenport. Davenport oh, was a... Sorry, that's Sahara. Sahara? Oh, <laughs> I was like Sahar's. I don't know. Yeah. It sounded like a cool name. Sahara Davenport. Davenport was a drag queen and singer, reality TV personality, and classically trained dancer. She appeared on season two of RuPaul's Drag Race. Uh, Davenport died of heart failure on October 1st, 2012. On a side note, I just want to say RuPaul is a fucking genius. 
I'm absolutely that dude I is an, it, it absolute fucking genius and Hell worth yeah. a fucking load of money, dude. What's that oh. song? What was that song that he had back in the day? He had a hit song. Was it work, working girl? Yeah. Do your thing <laughs> on the runway. Work. <laughs> Yeah, dude, fuck yeah. You, you got to give credit where credit's due. Uh, 2013 brought one death to the club. Sarush Farazamand yeah. was a member of the Iranian-American band, the Yellow Dogs. He was murdered along with a friend and another member of the band on November 11th, 2013. The shooter was a disgruntled musician that had hung around the band who later committed suicide after the shooting. That's fucked so, up. So basically what I was reading about that guy, it's kind of crazy. Like, I guess... They originally thought uh, it was reported that he was in the band and they got rid of him and then he killed those people. But I guess he was a, a, a in another Iranian-American band and they kicked that band, kicked him out, and he wasn't really doing anything, so he was hanging out with these guys. And I don't know, it just basically, like, they got into an argument and all this shit went down. He just started fucking shooting people. Jesus. He shot He shot that guy and a couple other people and then killed himself. That's freaking horrible, yeah, man. Yeah. 2014 was another one death year for the club. Uh, Slada Goduras was a Bosnian pop singer and actress who died in an auto accident on December 10th, 2014. While there were no deaths in 2015, 2016 brought on three. First was Thomas Lowe, bassist for the indie rock band uh, Viola Beach. On February 13, 2016, the band was traveling in Sweden when the vehicle they were in crashed. They clipped a vehicle that was stopped for a raised drawbridge striking part of the bridge and the vehicle fell into the water below killing all four members of the band including Lowe who was 27 years old. So that's another weird one if you read the accounts of the accident because there was uh, <clears throat> after the death they did the autopsies and stuff there was no alcohol or drugs found in anybody's systems and they, they were saying like the witnesses that were watching said basically like they were coming up on the stop and they didn't even like slow down like the cars in front of them braked to slow down because they were raising this bridge and they just like went around them, clipped the one car, smashed into like an embutment of the bridge, and then fell into the fucking water. Jesus. They were saying that uh, the one guy was saying, um, the police officer or whatever said that they were driving fast enough that they think the impact from the initial crash may have killed all four of them before they even went over the bridge. So they hit it that hard? They hit it doing about, they said anywhere between like 65, 70 miles an hour. Holy shit. Well, Thomas Fakit was the next to pass. He was the guitarist for the American indie rock band Surfer Blood. He passed away on May 31st, 2016 due to a bout with cancer. Wow! We'll be right back after this message. Every morning. So I said, so now we would have done that again. Yes. To guys, your regularly pay, scheduled dear. program. Yeah, did you, well, did you do it? Guys. Uh-oh. <laughs> Shit. Dude, Every goddamn can we time. Get like a, I'm, we need a better signal. I was waving. It's not good enough, Moody. I thought you were just like on fire or something. Do I look like I was on fire? I don't know. I couldn't tell. Your arms were waving. <laughs> 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 At any rate, figure it out, guys. Right. Figure it the Sorry. fuck out. We'll, we'll get it next time. God. So Will next, you? maybe. So next up from 2016 is a name that I'm sure at least some of you guys out there know. Actor Anton Yelchin was the third um, 27 Club death in 2016. If you're not familiar with the name, we'll give you some help here. His acting credits in film begin around 2000 when he starred in some pretty big films like Along Came a Spider with Morgan Freeman. You know, Andy Dufresne. Thank you. <laughs> and Hearts in Atlantis with Sir Anthony Hopkins. 
He followed those up with the uh, title role in the movie Charlie Bartlett, which, as we all know, has absolutely nothing to do with John- Johnny Bartlett from the movie The Frighteners. Just so everyone's... The Frighteners is fucking amazing. Such a great movie. I heard Bartlett, and I was like... That's <gasps> underrated. It's, one, yeah, absolutely one of the most underrated movies ever, ever. You guys, go out there and watch The Frighteners and come back to us and tell us how awesome it is. That's all you got to do. So 2009 saw Anton star in two blockbuster films. First, he was Chekhov in the reboot of the Star Trek, Star Trek fran- fran- franchise. <laughs> I will say, though, I grew up uh, with my dad being a Star Trek fan. And- a Trekkie? I love the new Star Trek movies. I think they're awesome. I, they're not bad. I haven't seen them, but I heard they were pretty good. They're, I love them. I think they're fantastic. Yeah. Well, then he followed that up with a role in Terminator Salvation as Kyle Reese. He had a recurring role as the voice of Grumpy Smurf in the new reboots of the Smurfs franchise. Other credits include two more Star Trek movies, one of which was released after his death. The title role in the movie Odd Thomas, which is actually I, I an say, awesome have movie. Have you guys seen that movie? Yes. It's a great movie. It's a great movie. I watched it like out of like I saw it one day. I'm like, this looks kind of cool. Check it out. Yeah, I was like, dude. Yeah, because it, it had great. him in it. So I'm like, yeah, yeah I got to watch it. A role in the reboot of Fright Night as Charlie Brewster. And that was a good movie. I haven't seen that. That's I haven't Colin seen the, Farrell. It's yeah, really yeah, I haven't, I haven't, seen, I haven't that. seen the reboot. I liked it. I like the original. The original was great. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and as Pat in the film Green Room, Green Room uh, which is an amazingly fucked up movie fucking where uh, John awesome Luke Picard movie, plays a murdering Aryan asshole. It's Pat. <laughs> so good, dude. <laughs> That's a reference most people probably won't get. Yeah. Dude, that movie, though, The Green Room, phenomenal. It's fucked up, but awesome. Yeah, it's it's super good. good. Uh, There were many more credits, and Anton had uh, really made a name for himself at the time of his death. On June 18th, 2016, when he failed to arrive at a rehearsal, Yelton was found by his friends just before midnight, penned between his Jeep Grand Cherokee and a brick pillar mailbox outside his house in Studio California. Studio City of California, sorry. The victim of what was described as a freak accident. As Yelchin got out of his car and went to check his locked gate, the vehicle apparently rolled back down his driveway, which was on a sleep, steep incline, and trapped him against the pillar and a security fence. Fuck. That's Final Destination shit right there. That's uh, cra- but can crazy, you just man. imagine you're by yourself and that happens? Like, da, 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 da. Uh, yeah. And then, like, what do you do, man? Well, and then that's the other thing. Like, well, how, I would grab the bumper long? and push it out of the way. That's just me, though. Well, you would. That's just you. Yeah. How fucking long was he there, like unable to do shit That's before he I'm actually saying. died? I hope he didn't do shit anything. <laughs> what? You said anyway. Yelchin was pronounced dead at the scene on June 19, 2016, at the age of 27. The Los Angeles County Coroner's Office identified the cause of death as blunt traumatic asphyxia and stated that there were, quote, no obvious suspicious circumstances involved. <sighs> Go ahead and pause it. <laughs> Passengers, at this point in the recording process, the gents were surprised when some fellow passengers quietly entered the train station. If you listen closely, you can hear a hilarious fellow named Jay say grab em by the pussy. Thanks to Katie, Bill, Lisa and Jay for stopping by. Now, on with the show. 2017 saw the death of Kim Jong-hyun, which, to be honest, I thought it was Kim Jong-il or Un, whichever one. When I first started reading it, I'm like, is he one of those guys? (laughs) He had to been older than that, right? Hurry, she! (laughs) Release the Panthers! So this guy was actually a member of uh, Japanese boy band Shiny, who uh, have been dubbed... I think it's Shiny. Shiny? I think so. It's Japanese. You would think it'd be Shiny, right? I don't know, but maybe shiny S H I N E E shiny is more of a boy band name. Yeah, maybe who have been dubbed the princes of K-pop. Zhang Hyun died of an apparent suicide due to carbon monoxide poisoning. That's the second one of carbon monoxide. So 
I don't know if you guys know this, but like that K-pop shit, it's huge. Like, well, that, but like the people that are in it, like the musicians and the artists, dude, it is fucking like ruthless. Like the people basically, they're like fucking indentured servants. To, I hear like, their lot. managers. There's a ton like, of it's horror stories, killing dude. themselves yeah. and killing other people. Yeah, it's pretty wild. So the final entry we have for you guys into the club is in the American rapper Frito Santana. Yep. Frito is the older cousin of rapper Chief Keef. Frito collaborated with several big names, including being in Drake videos, um, guest appearances on his albums from the likes of Migos, Soldier Boy, Kendrick Lamar, and Chief Keef. Santana was a heavy user of drugs, at one point being addicted to Xanax and Lean. If you're not familiar with Lean, it's also known as Purple Drink and Scissorp. And is a drink yeah. that combines prescription grade cough syrup. That's robo tripping. Yeah, it's got uh, prescription grade uh, cough syrup with Kool Aid or soda and candy. Like how Moody's all quiet. Yeah, what? sipping on some scissor. We know I you robo trips. I had no idea what the fuck sipping. that was when I read it. Yeah, it's like, lean. lean? Yeah. What the fuck is lean? Oh yeah, dude. That's no. that's yeah for sure. Especially like in <clears throat> down south, like where the southern like rappers and stuff are. That was huge. Yeah, but I lived there. I lived down there for and you never. And I never. I have no idea what lean was. He's like, we just called it getting fucked up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Santana attributed his heavy drug use to trauma experienced during his childhood claiming he had a post-traumatic stress disorder and turned to drugs as a coping mechanism. Santana was hospitalized in March of 2017 after suffering a seizure, which he blamed on a heavy workload and his poor sleep schedule. After the seizures persisted, Santana was diagnosed with idiopathic epilepsy in May of 2017 and prescribed Keppra to treat it. Despite the medicine, Santana continued to suffer from seizures, usually multiple seizures. Seizures. Seizure. Jesus, I can't. Thank you. Seizures. There it is. In a row. Five times. Yeah. Fuck off. Seizure, 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 seizure. Santana was hospitalized once again in October 2017. Seizure, 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 seizure. Yeah, much more seizures. Like a seizure salad? Is that what it was? How many seizures do you have in your life? seizures. Holy seizure salad. What size? Anyway, he was hospitalized once again in October of 2017 after a friend and fellow rapper Gino Marley found Santana mid-seizure on the floor of his house with blood coming from his nose, or excuse me, from his mouth. Santana was rushed to hospital and diagnosed with both liver and kidney failure, with the main factors being his addiction to Xanax and lean. Santana expressed interest in going to rehab while in hospital. On the evening of January 19th, 2018, at around 11.30 p.m. local time, Santana's girlfriend discovered him unresponsive at their home in Reseda, Los Angeles. Unfor or shortly after, Santana was pronounced dead. He had suffered a fatal seizure, and an autopsy revealed he had developed cardiovascular disease in addition to the previous conditions he suffered from. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for our news segment... All right, so here's the thing. From time to time, once in a great while, I like to chip in on research. Now, I know you guys, you guys don't need it, and you guys don't encourage it, but I felt like on this one, I needed to do some, some of my own digging around and bring some stuff to the table. You know what I mean? Boy, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the 27 Club is a pretty popular thing. It's there's a lot of theories out there. Sure. Did you know? <laughs> Probably well, not. Let me let me let me start with this first. I'm gonna assume that I know nothing about what you guys. About. <laughs> do you guys remember the TV show Seventh Heaven? 
Yes. Jessica yeah. Biel started on that show. And the dude turned out to be like a complete pedophile. Yeah. Yeah. Well, did you know originally, mm. originally yeah. the pilot of that show was for the 27th Heaven Club? Did you know that? I did not know that. Well, I got my paws on it. If you want to check out this pilot. Well, of course we do. Well, let's take a look. Yeah. 27 Heaven is filmed in front of a live studio audience. And now, the shadow. clouds man wow this is like whoa where am i welcome to heaven who are you i am god and you are curtis Cobain. Whoa, wait bro like i'm in i'm dead i'm in heaven now that's correct what's the what happened well you kind of ate a gun but we'll leave it at that so anyways Welcome to heaven, and uh, let me show you around. The place is magnificent. Wow, I just can't believe I'm here, and I feel so good, like I have no pain in my body. This is amazing. The air is so clean. Well, we strive to make uh, a nice place, if you will. So come on in. Look, let's, uh, let me introduce you to the others. Uh, okay, uh, all right, let's go. Ah, yeah, here we go. Hey, this is Jim. Jim, this is Curtis Cobain. Say hello. Hey, man. Did you know that if you run from the sun, it will bite your ankles off? You have to run six degrees east by seven degrees south, and it cannot get you that way. I'm Jim Morrison. Nice to meet you. Oh, oh my God. This is like an honor. I know who you are. I listened to you when I was growing up. All your music. Music is a tissue wiping the snot hole of society. Okay, man. It's like if an elephant jumped into the water and started singing the alphabet. What do you do? All right, hold on, Jim. That's enough uh, crazy insight for one day. Curtis just got here, so I'm going to show him around, meet the other guys, and uh, you just keep doing your thing there, buddy. Grapes are considered the monarch of all peaceful beings. You know what, man? I'm just going to let you go meet everybody else. It was great to meet you, Kurt Kubu. I mean, Cobain. And uh, I'll see you around, man. Keep it groovy. Uh, All right, Jim. Wow, Jim Morrison. Holy cow. What's next? All right, move along, Curtis. Oh, look, there's Janice. She's practicing with her band. Janice Joplin? Are you kidding me? Wow! I think you go, 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 go
absolutely mesmerizing, Janice. Wow. Hey, by the way, I want you to meet our new friend here, Curtis Cobain. Oh my god, I can't even believe I'm talking to Janis Joplin. You're like a legend. Yeah. You have no idea how yeah. much you influenced me growing up with your music. I like some go, Curtis. I'm so good. I can hear you. Miss you. You know what? I gotta go. I gotta use the band. I'll talk to you later. And that's why I put cotton in my ears whenever I go to hang with Janis. What? Anyway, huh? Let's go meet the others. Come what? this way, Curtis. Did you say something? I can't. I got like this ringing in my ear. Yeah, she does. I'll that. just. I'm gonna follow you. Oh yes, here. Here we go. Here's Jimmy. Hey, Jimmy. Come on over here. Put the guitar down for a minute and come meet Curtis. Oh wow, Jimi Hendrix, man, you are an idol to me and such an influence. How does he do that with his mouth? I, I'm not under, I'm, I'm not understanding what he, what he's saying. Well, you see, Curtis, here's the thing. Back on Earth, things are a little different than up here in heaven. So, up here, there's, uh, I could say, a magical touch to things. So, Jimmy over here, he speaks the language of Stratocaster. Wow, like like the guitar. He talks like a guitar. That's amazing. Well, yeah, it takes a little while to get used to, but once you understand the language and learn it, you can have full-on conversations with Jimi Hendrix in Stratocaster. Yeah. No, I, I told him, Jimmy. Yes, I know Elon Musk will be here soon if he keeps going at the rate he's going. All right, Jimmy. I will do that. Yeah, that's fine. All right, you have a good one, Jimmy. All right, Curtis, come this way. Ah, oh, uh, so cool. There's so many people to meet up here, but you know what? What's that? I think we'll be done for today. It's a lot to take in, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, so it is. Let's go ahead and I'll show you where you're staying. And uh, wait, who's that? Who's that right there? Oh, him? He's uh, he's not really part of the 27 Club. He he looks familiar, though. You sure? He's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, who are you? <laughs> what? Who are you? Who? Hey, you're talking to me? Curtis, this here is George, uh, George Romero. What? He's done 27 movies, so 27? that's why he's here. Or whatever. What? What the hell? You don't boo me, you sons of bitches! I'll fight every one of you with my arm behind my back! God! You ungrateful, smart face fuckers! Whoa! George, this is live TV performance! What are you doing? Cut the fade! Hey, fuck! Get what? Romero off the stage! What the hell is he Get doing here? He ruined don't the goddamn me. show again! Don't touch me, you son of bitch! You know what TGIF stands for? Thank God! It's fucked! Sit. Good dog. And there you have it. The pilot that never made wow. to light. I think that would have been an amazing show if it was actually yeah, it been released. Show. It would have been better than the actual Seventh Heaven, I think. Yeah. Twenty Seventh Heaven. Yeah. 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 And and plus, you know, the whole pedophile thing. Again, have to say that's bad. Yeah. That's not good. Yeah. How does George Romero <laughs> end up in everything? You notice that? <sighs> well, I mean, because it's George Romero, I guess. You know, of the dead, that crazy old, that crazy old coot, <laughs> that, that <Right>. old coot. <laughs> All right, passengers, we hope you enjoyed this crazy, 
in-depth ride on the 27 Club. Yeah, we introduced you to a lot of people and a lot of information, and we hope you suck it all in and you realize there was a lot of people, a lot of people that lead credence to why people think this is an actual club and that people pass away when they're 27. And it seems like it's you know usually the ones that could potentially be... Yeah way bigger than what they actually were so yeah you guys um you guys helped pick that episode you know also man like seriously go back if you're not familiar with some of these people go back and check some of them out because there's a lot of good stuff that these people did absolutely they put out a ton of great stuff so make sure you're checking that out and make sure you keep you keep on voting for the upcoming episodes on our facebook page and click on the uh you pick the episode button and uh, of course don't forget to head on over to the midnight train podcast.com at our website, you guys can buy some super sweet merchandise. Super at sweet. Our store. Super sweet. Super Caesar. sweet. <laughs> super Caesar. sweet Caesar. Super sweet Caesar. <laughs> and we will donate 10% of every sale to the National Association on Mental Illness. Correct. Uh, if you or someone you know is struggling with mental illness issues, please call the NAMI NAMI helpline at 1 800 950 6264. Um, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or in a crisis, text NAMI to 741741 because mental health is no joke. Do not forget to send us creepy shit because Moody wants as many dolls that his wife can possibly have in his house. Look, it's just the easiest way to a divorce. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Love you, s- you, babe. <laughs> you can send all of that stuff <laughs> to the Midnight Train Podcast, P.O. Box 38206, Olmstead Falls, Ohio 44138. And listeners keep asking how they can keep the steam in our engines. Well, if you like what you hear from us, consider being a producer of the show by heading over to themidnighttrainpodcast.com. Thank you. There it is. Dot com. Toots. And toots. <laughs> and clicking on the Patreon button for as little as five bucks a month, you guys can get all kinds of cool shit like a custom shirt, custom poster, custom sticker, bonus episodes. There's and some way great, more. great episodes. Of Absolutely. On there, by the way, the bonus stuff's fun, man, because it's a little more. First and foremost, there's no uh, ads in it whatsoever. Um, so it's completely ad free. And second of all, it's it's we can kind of let loose a little bit, I feel, on those. Um, so, yeah, make sure you guys are doing that. And if you you know, if you're a diehard Midnight Train fan and you want to help produce this motherfucker, our Patreon is for you. For those of you that would rather just leave us a one time donation just to help the show out and keep us doing what we're doing. Head on over to PayPal and use the email address. The Midnight Train podcast at Gmail dot com. Also, you can easily subscribe, like and rate us on your favorite podcast platform and YouTube, of course. Most importantly, share the midnight train to everyone. It takes only a couple of minutes, and word of mouth is how we're going to get the, more uh, passengers and the, keep the train moving. The Patreon subscribers called all the other people dorks. Yeah, oh, they said you guys so were dorks. They said you yeah. guys were dorks. So wow. It's I'm getting like saying, that, huh? I'm just saying. That's what they it's said. It's getting like that. Well, you they, guys. They told me to tell you guys that you're dorks. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys, you definitely have to uh, you know, step it up a little bit here. Um, <laughs> that's. I'm just saying what they said. No, that's what they said. That's yeah, what absolutely. they said, yeah. So you guys, every one of you guys, whether you're a producer or not, you really do help keep the train moving. And we thank you guys so much for listening. And okay, so a big motherfucking midnight train shout out to Kevin, Matt, Diana, Christopher, Jacqueline, Katie, Michaela, Tommy, Pizza Box, the Sister Skeleton. Please make sure you check out the Sister Skeleton podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Riley, Diana, uh, let's see, Diana, Lena, Stephanie, Julie, Laura, Cynthia, Kirsten, Dawn, Nicola, Chanel, Alex, Emily, Ann, son of Vasco, Alicia, Frandapai, Danny, 
<laughs> Melissa, Grace, Stormy, Eva, Robert the Fun Box Podcast. Melissa, Wayne, Victoria, Hager, Sean, Chainsaw, Jigsaw. <laughs> also, Bill's son, Colin. That's right. I'm shouting out for Colin out there. I heard he's a new subscriber. So from all of us here to Colin, Bill's son. Todd, David V, Justin K, Juan, Bill, Belin, I believe it's Belin, Ken and Brad at Voodoo Vodka, uh, Chef Ke- uh, Kevin, Katie, Davey, our Mexican Vado, and a very special thank you to our producers, Chad Flint for the my motherfucking hat, first of all, dude. Yeah. Thank you for my hat. That by the way, yeah. Chad, your, awesome. uh, your submitted uh, Kanye Elon is going to be on the Patreon episode, so yeah, that'll we will be do awesome. a justice on there. Also... He threw a hot dog. You did throw the hot we dog. Called, it was awesome. We you did throw the hot dog. I felt bad because he did it like right after we recorded we the recorded last episode. It, I got home and I looked at the Facebook page. I was like, oh, damn. We just. Yeah. <laughs> but he still did it, that man. Was awesome. So, Chad, good job on that. Also, our other producers, Cheryl Pierce, Chris McLeod, Christina Skelton, Jessica Bartolome, Bill Birch, and Samantha Pickworth. If you want your name to be mentioned on the show, sign up as a member on our website, or become a Patreon producer because the producers, wow. we love you guys. I mean, we love you all. But just all right. remember, they, the producers called the rest of you dorks. That's right. They so did you know. call you dorks. They're calling you guys out. They want to I mean, fight. They I told mean, me they were willing to fight yeah, you guys. I mean, so. we're not that we're promoting the fighting. We're yes, just we telling are. you we're what they said. We're absolutely promoting the fighting. <laughs> <laughs> so listen. <laughs> I thought this episode was awesome. I want to talk about it more in our, our, you know, after the episode episode for our Patreon subscribers. We're definitely going to get into that. It's going to be the after party where we get to talk about uh, some conspiracies and some crazy fucking shit. Um, So, Jeff, you got anything to say? Uh, No, but I got a precursor. So I have a boxcar song. And I just want to mention that I had nothing to do with this. This is a guy on YouTube and he's fucking phenomenal. It's called Trump Metal. He takes metal songs and he takes hours and hours of footage of Trump saying the actual lyrics and puts them in the music. It's That's unbelievable. pretty awesome. So we're going to play that today. All right, Moody, anything? Woo! <laughs> <laughs> All right, so listen, on behalf of everyone here, man, we hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please tell your friends about us. And as always, choo-choo, motherfuckers! Thank you very much, everybody. The Sandman. My wife asked me, why the Sandman? Just tell me. Our first lady. I said, because when enter Sandman, fill the arena. Fans went crazy. When you hear the music, you'll understand exactly why I say that. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Say your prayers. One. Don't forget. My son. To include everyone. On. Oh. Tuck you in. Warm within. Keep you free. From sin. Till the Sandman. He comes. Oh. Sleep with one eye open. Good thing you. Till blow tight, folks. Shed light. To never, never land. Huh? We will make America metal again. We cover everybody. This is a movement like nobody's ever seen before. It really is. It's a movement 
Something's wrong. Shut the light. Heavy thoughts tonight. And they are not snow white. Dreams of war. Dreams of liars. Dreams of dragons. Fire. And things that will bite. Yeah. Sleep with one eye open. Good thing you pillow time. That's it. Passengers, don't forget to sign up to Patreon and become a producer to hear the after the episode, bonus episode, as well as all of the other brilliant bonus content that is and will be available. You guys are fucking awesome. Like. Seriously. Thank you so much.